the White House, President Eisenhower signs the proclamation that makes Alaska's entry into the Union official, nearly 92 years after Lincoln's Secretary of State bought the territory from the Russian Tsar for $7 million. The Alaska Wild Project podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Barney Sports Chalet, supplying hunters with the best hand-selected gear since 1963. The exclusive home of Frontier Gear, built for the rugged Alaskan terrain. Your one-stop shop for all your outdoor needs. Visit Barney's today at 906 West Northern Lights. Arbor Digital, the forefront of digital assets, cryptocurrencies, and wealth management. Providing a low-cost, research-based investment strategy for Alaskans looking to invest their hard-earned money. Visit arborcapital.io today to put your money to work. Tailored Restoration 24-Hour Emergency Home Services. Helping Alaskans restore their dreams since 1972. Services include fire, water, mold, post-emergency cleaning, repair, and remodeling. Give them a call in Anchorage, Eagle River, Matsu, or Fairbanks. Hit them up at tailoredrestorationalaska.com. Total Truck and Alaska Overlander, Alaska's premier supplier for custom automotive accessories and overlanding products, providing all-inclusive rental vehicles and trailers custom outfitted to explore the Alaskan backcountry with a unique and convenient traveling experience. Serrano's Mexican Grill, two locations, one on Tudor, one on Northern Lights. The Northern Lights location has their new tequila bar. Check it out. Also see their daily specials at serranosmexicangrill.com. TheTreehouseAK.com, located at 341 Boniface Parkway, Alaska's own and grown cannabis and CBD store. Ask the bud tender what the strain of the day is to get your 10% off. The Treehouse, where the culture lives. The Connoisseur Lounge, Alaska's premier locally owned and operated cannabis retailer, located in the heart of Palmer, Alaska. Their cultivated products include Snowcap Romance, Aurora Haze, Superglue, and much more. Find them at theconnoisseurlounge.net. AKO Farms, located in Sitka, Alaska, built from the ground up with concentrates as their single motivation, with exclusive products such as their sugar wax, full-spectrum diamond sauce cards, and more. Ask your local bud tender about AKO. Marijuana has intoxicating effects and may be habit-forming and addictive. Marijuana impairs concentration, coordination, and judgment. Do not operate a vehicle or machinery under the influence. There are health risks associated with consumption of marijuana. For the use of only by adults 21 and older, keep out of the reach of children, and marijuana should not be used by women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. The Bait Shack, located on Ship Creek upstream of the bridge. Can't miss the bright red shack. They're the go-to fishing gear rental and guide service on Ship Creek. Tight lines and fish on. Come hook into the action with them. Hit them up at thebaitshackak.com. Snow Pro AK, your snow and ice management company specializing in business and residential properties. They know what it takes to keep your property presentable and safe. Give them a call for a free estimate at 280-7098 or visit lawnproak.com. Double Shovel Cider Company, located off of Arctic and 58th handcrafted Alaskan-made colonial ciders. They also have a tap room downtown on the corner of 5th and E. Stop by today and taste an award-winning cider. The Alaska chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. BHA is the voice of our Alaskan public lands, waters, and wildlife. Their goal is to uphold our hunting and fishing legacy while keeping our public lands wild. Stand up today and join BHA at backcountryhunters.org. Early start, Jack. Ooh, yeah. I'm on it. 
you're on it. Yeah, this is my first one of the day. So hey, you were saving it, man. Good job. Yeah, yeah. I did uh, taste some of the pepper peak today, and it is bomb and hot. <sighs> that looks so spicy, dude. It's good. Oh my god, that yeah. huge bag you guys had. Oh man, how do you control it if it's too spicy? Too spicy? But no, I don't think that's a real thing. Oh, I've I'm, yet, I'm I've, with you on that. The the diehard Pepper Peak fans. Yeah, I wanted to burn my they're soft always face like, all the way down. You, you didn't make it hot again this year. It is like no, it is hot. <laughs> so this year I brought back the we brought back the heat. Yeah, it looks it's like a, it. Yeah, it's uh, it's styled, dude. It's good. Like you guys got full goggles, full hazmat. Suit. Oh, you got to. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, people are like choking in the back, basically. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever offer anybody like a hundred bucks to just do a full line, just? Just Ooh. a full pepper line? Yeah. <laughs> just a full shot of just the pepper I, juice? I would just feel too bad what that would do to them, man. Straight to the ER? Yeah. Just, I will say that that my first, you know, I got that little uh, aroma smell first, you know, and when I went to do that today, like, just the smell, like, kind of, like, tingle my throat a little bit. I Get your eye, heat. eye just watering. Just the what's, back of my, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the orange one, the little orange one? Uh, habaneros. Oh, that's habaneros. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. One time, I use that for my... Uh, halibut spicy mango oh, ceviche yeah 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 and it doesn't matter you must wear gloves when uh -huh. you're doing that because i didn't and i thought oh okay this was like in the morning oh yeah totally all day i washed my hands multiple times mm -hmm. all day that night good take my contacts out <laughs> yeah. oh man i was rolling around on the ground yeah. like a child that's right dude you're just splashing milk in oh is that what you do no, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I would have did anything. I almost had my wife take me to the hospital. Yeah. I use milk on the skin. I don't know what else people would use. But for, like, equipment, I use alcohol. Like, 70% isopropyl, just like that capsaicin, just it's, like, ripped off mm. with the alcohol. But you have to run the alcohol through stuff. Like, through your equipment, like, two or three times. Yeah. What if you could put milk in the eye? Why couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I think you can. I mean... Oh. I mean I'm yeah, trying to remember what I did. I got taco <laughs> seasoning in my eye once, and it was brutal. It wouldn't have been habanero bad, though. Did I tell you guys the time we were going to go out on a hunt? I think I might have said this early in the podcast. And it was one of those, like, hey, we're picking you up at 4 in the morning. Be ready, you know. Oh, so I get perfect. all my stuff out into the garage and, like, out on the driveway. I'm, like, ready to go, 4 a.m. You know, my brother, I don't know who's coming to pick me. I think it was my brother. And I'm, like, checking the the bear the bear canister and for some reason like when you first unclick it i mean and when you first unclick it sometimes a little comes oh yeah out. yeah yeah and like an idiot i'm like looking at it I'm like, oh. Oh. i was like let me just make sure this thing's ready to rock dude <laughs> right in my eye bro and i start screaming rolling around on the mm. ground just in like all my camera i'm just like ready to go dude. 4 a.m ah, 4 a.m ah. and finally i'm like ah, what am i doing and i like go in the house and shh, i come back out on the and i look across the street and my neighbor <laughs> is just sitting up there looking and just laughing just <laughs> laughing he was up like getting ready for work or something he's just out on his porch like smoking a cigarette or something <laughs> and he just looks at me and just shakes his head oh man <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome dude <laughs> Oh, that should yeah. be on like the de when dads get her Instagram or something. Oh man, I mean rolling around, yeah, in the street. It was funny, John. I bet you've had your uh, fair share of 
bear spray. Yeah, yeah. But I, um, I, I almost <laughs> say it's better than getting shot in the butt with a forty-four. Oh, would be, oh yeah. shit! Oh, yeah. my, my dad took oh. around once uh, when he started. He started up on the dew line, and was out caribou hunting and got shot by his buddy. Oh fuck, oh, dude! I always God. figured, yeah, I'd much rather be pepper sprayed, and, and I've had my experience <clears throat> with pepper spray, but. Never been shot with a bullet. That's a one-upper. What yeah. was that? A grazed like flesh wound or the full? No, it was the full. He had uh, um, the double uh, butthole now. Yeah, actually, yeah, he did. He's permanently <laughs> maimed. He was maimed? Uh, he was working on the dew line, and you know the caribou were coming right past the place. So at the end of the work, back then you could just walk off the job site and go hunting, and so he did. Popped a caribou, handed his rifle to his hunting buddy. And uh, went up to make sure it was down with his twenty-two pistol, and he bent over to check on the um, caribou. It was dead, and then he said, all of a sudden, it was just like pile driver. And um, his buddy had checked on him with the scope of his own of his rifle, oh. and then uh, he had a hair trigger and touched off around with his glove because it was in the winter. Oh my and, God! Um, put it. Right oh, he was just like glancing through the glass just to say, just to check on him. Yeah, using the scope of the yeah. rifle to check oh on his body. Oh, my gosh. goodness. That's, Way too comfortable. Yeah. That's what binoculars are for. Yep. yep. Yeah. Oh, my God. my couldn't say that one one right there. Yep. And they... Uh, Damn, man. I mean, that could have been way worse. Yeah. They. Yeah. Well, at the time, they said you're not going to live from this, and he. Oh, he, t- he tipped over. Out? Yeah, he tipped over into the snow, and his buddy freaked out because he he thought he just <laughs> shot him to death, and uh, he was a heavy set guy and started running through the snow and falling down trying to get back to the the warehouses and and get help, and so my dad rolled to his his side and started shooting at the building with his twenty two. And uh, you know everyone get heard, somebody's heard these attention. Shots. Yeah, got the got the uh, attention of everyone else there. They came out to to see what was going on. Called the medevac, and uh, the first the first guy that was on scene, you know, said this guy's not going to make it. As he loaded my conscious father into the plane, oh man! And my dad was like, "Fuck you! I'm going to make it." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me that shit. So they oh flew, flew him to Fairbanks, and then um, back then they had to put out a notice to, to get blood. They didn't have enough blood at the at the hospital at the time, and uh, enough <laughs> enough people came in and filled him back up with blood, and he made it. Nice. Oh my but goodness. they said he would never have kids because it, it you know it blew things all all over the place. And, Holy and, uh, shit! And so he told the doctor, well, "I'm going to prove you wrong there too." Uh, wow! <laughs> so, so you're a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> you are. Yeah. What's the dew line? Distant, was that was that. the distant early warning system. So when you see these uh, weird pictures of golf balls out on the coast, those are those um, big round kind of radar stations. So inside oh. that would be um, for listening to the Russians back then. And then oh. most of them were decommissioned, I think, around the 1970s. But Okay, um, like Cold War shit. Yep, exactly. Okay. And that was, um, I think when my dad came up here in the early 60s, and he, um, he was just stoked on Alaska from the get-go. How, how can and, you not be right? Right, especially back then. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, and so I think he ended up as a cook for a while out there, and mm. then um, when the pipeline came through, then became a pipe fitter, and was just always kind of skill building. But with the the ultimate idea that he skill wanted to, building I like that. Yeah, he wanted to to move farther out where there was nobody, and so mm-hmm. kind of worked his way into the Brooks Range, and then that's that's where he really kind of set down roots out there. And we, um, he ended up starting a, um, guiding business out there for doing uh, big game guiding. He was a master guide mm. and then, um, wanted to build a lodge. And so, um, the folks started in 1974 and built a lodge, uh, 200 miles North of Fairbanks. Wow. Was his nickname one cheek? No, no, <laughs> I don't. Is that too soon? I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> Nobody really bugged me about that. Was I was probably a sensitive <laughs> subject. I just wanted to throw it. It's, yeah. it's, a ways, it's been a little while, so. So it must not have hobbled him at all, huh? If he was able to be a hunting guide after that. Yeah, it, um, you know, it, it was, it like came out right about his crotch and it didn't, um, <sighs> you know, hurt, like it didn't, uh, take out any big muscles or tendons, um, mm-hmm. didn't break any big blood vessels. Like apparently just kind of just yeah. a hole through him. Yeah. I guess if you're going to shoot someone in the butt, he got shot in just the right spot, <sighs> but it wasn't like, you know, like right in the hole. It wasn't like in his cheek, like his oh, cheek yeah, had no, a dimple. I- like oh yeah but why it didn't shatter his hip because if you shot a caribou like that you it would go that's what i'm thinking right, right. like it would have yeah i mean think about what a 44 can do for mm-hmm. as far as damage Whew. he's a lucky man yeah 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 wow. and he, he loaded his own rounds back then too so damn it when he told clients he got shot they were probably like fucking pick the right one yeah, yeah. during the safety meeting and you see this just turns around exactly. and pulls his pant down. <laughs> don't don't, don't do this. <laughs> don't shoot the guide. <laughs> what 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 constitutes a master guide? Well, in Alaska, you start off um, generally as a packer, mm-hmm. and so and then um, you are you have to stay in good standing with the people that you work with. So you get these recommendations that go on to the. Um, I guess it's ADF and G, and then you can become an assistant guide through a. a testing and and it, it's it's broken down by the area so obviously if you're in say southeast you're going to be studying deer more than uh, a caribou up north or somewhere else and so you're you have to be proficient in your particular game unit and then um no you know it's big on regulations um dressing out animals and then having that rapport with other guides because you're in an apprenticeship program so he went through assistant guide and then became a registered guide and then if you're a registered guide in good standing for 10 years no violations, and then also have more recommendations from other guides in your community, then you become a master guide. And he, at that time, he was working for um, Alaska's um, first master guide. He had master guide license number one, and that was Hal Wah, who's And he started mm. in the Brooks Range. Yeah. And, and the, that Brooks Range is that belt of, of um, mountains that's about 700 miles long across kind of the, the same shape as the Arctic Circle and right at the Arctic Circle up north. So... For you know, even by Alaska standards, it's it's a northern northern area, and I think at the time people thought, well, it's this is no too remote to really start a business. But he, um, that's that's what he wanted. That was his jam. So mm. yeah, so cool. Yeah, if I remember, Austin Manelik, Manelik. Yeah. Um, what did he say? There was like you'd have X amount of kills under your belt, like personally, right. if I remember right, and yeah. then the field dressing. Yeah. All that stuff impacted the master guide's status. Mm. Like you had to have cleaned enough bears and moose and caribou. Oh, and all that too. Do you get, get like a master's jacket or, or a patch or yeah, something? Patch. <laughs> I don't think pin? something. Did you get not a pin or something? Uh, patch. Yeah. Uh, even to this uh, day, I, a buddy of mine just became a registered a good old guide. Boy I club. I don't, I don't even. I mean, it seems like you get a cool belt buckle or something, but yeah. And then back then they they just kind of had a had a map of the, of the northern part of Alaska and just kind of drew with crayon like this would be Joe's <laughs> pot and this would be Mike's and, oh yeah and yeah. stay out of each other's way not, my territory don't go past this river or past this tree line <laughs> how did, I wonder how they worked out those disputes yeah I'm, mm, arm wrestling maybe well you see right here it's red and blue is purple this is both of ours it's like uh, <laughs> let's pull the dogs out let's have a race <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Welcome to Alaska Wild Project, episode one hundred and five. Today we have John Gadik. 
Get a key. Get, get a, a key. key. Get a key. Get a key. Oh, sorry. Like, sorry. Hey, get a key. Yes. Get a key for the door. Get a key. Get a key. Yeah. Get a key. I knew I was going to mess that up. God, I even asked and said it 50 times. Get a key. All right. Get a key. Uh, John is the chairman of the Brooks Range Council um, up in the Brooks Range. Uh, the Instagram is at Arctic Johnny and your lodge um, Instagram is at Go North. Uh, go far north. Go far north. Yeah. Go, go far, far north. north. Yeah, I got it up on Instagram here. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, the folks started it in '74, uh, built from the local lodges or the local logs around there, and um, yeah, that's kind of what we've tried to do is is just uh, integrate with the landscape and show off the area. And then we started up there before the national parks, but in 1980, that was when the Carter administration came in and and mm. started up all these parks. So now we've got Gates of the Arctic up there. And uh, Cobalt Valley National Park, and then there's um, preserves coming off of that as well. What's the name of the Wilderness Lodge? Inyukuk Lake Wilderness Lodge. Okay, Inyukuk Lake. Lake. It's on the lake too. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That Inyukuk Lake is about five miles long. Most of the lakes uh, and and waterways in the Brooks Range are running north south because of the direction of the valleys, mm -hmm. and so. Um, that's one there's a, there are four or five kind of bigger lakes up there Inukuk lakes a little over five miles long and then to the west of us is walker lake which is a little bit more famous it's in gates of the arctic yeah that one's pretty good sized yeah that's 11 or 12 miles long yeah we were checking that out on the um uh, uh no road to ambler map website yeah. there yeah, and that's got some, out which lake it was. some monster lake trout in it it's 400 feet deep so it's oh, wow. holy Ooh. shit really yeah. Yeah. had some 40 pounders taken out oh, of some monsters man. lurking in there yep we got a picture of your uh, lodge is that is this the lodge here yep that's yeah, it that's gorgeous man what's the Absolutely footprint beautiful um let's see i think it's about 28 by 36 okay. and it's pretty oh, hard damn. to build anything much bigger up there because of our uh, trees are relatively small that far north so you can if you kind of look at the the logs themselves the <clears throat> You know, the butts might be 15 inches across, but by the time you get to the tip, it's barely six inches. There's a lot of tape. Oh, they narrow right. down. Oh, mm -hmm. right. okay. Gotcha. And and the main construction of the lodge itself is all native timber right around the area? Yep, yep. And it was all hand logged. Wow. So what they do is go up the, the hillside, try to get them to... We have black spruce, which are down low, that are kind of like known as the drunken forest. They're kind of topsy-turvy in the frozen tundra they like curve and yeah, all that and yeah real they're, thin. they're real thin but then as you get farther up better drainage then you get into um white spruce yeah and so that's what mm. you want for log building those but the then big you, boys. yeah then you got to get up higher so they would go up um my father cut cut those in the springtime and then they would just get a bunch of guys together um cut kind of a trench through the willows and then put five or six guys on a tree with ropes and then run it down to the lake and mm -hmm. then built a raft and then floated that to the north end oh, of the lake wow hauled it up so it i was getting ready to ask you how you guys got uh, the logs to that specific location that makes sense got it on the lake yep mm. and how many logs are there in the cabin usually with um those little trees you figure about 10 per wall so okay so 40 for for each story and so that there's probably oh, man. around 200 logs yeah look wow. how they're stacked on the left side here you can see where those narrow tips yeah oh where they're kind of okay. filling in the gaps yeah yeah. You can see it on the front too, I think, right there. Where oh, it's like, like every like, other one. Oh, yeah, like they, how they got the skinnier ones up here. Well, there's a skinny one and then a thick goes one. Fat, the skinny skinny fat, so they that are is, like opposing directions. That is exactly. a real log. Yeah. Like real, real log lodge. That is fucking cool, dude. Yeah. What's that the maintenance like? 
It's that's pretty brutal. That's 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 the mm. legacy my father passed on to me. Um, mm. He died in 1991, and so then I've been doing maintenance ever since. And uh, um, yeah, it's a lot. I mean, we're lucky that up there we only get a few inches of rain a year. It's a it's an Arctic desert basically, but um, you know it's, it's cold and uh, logs just need a lot of of attention. I mean, you've basically carved a house out of wood, and so about every three to four years, I resurface the whole thing and then. Um, mm you know, weatherproof it and, 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 uh, maintaining the roof is the big thing to try to keep it protected. Yeah. It What's looks really tattered on the front edge there. Like this front part. Like a little weathered on uh, the yeah. 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 That's the South mm -hmm. side. So it gets, uh, you know, that 24 hour sunshine in the summer and then rotating right. around. Sorry to interrupt you there, Jack. So what, what did you do for the, the roof then? Did, did you bring a mill in or do, is that wood that you brought in? No, the, um, the roof is all, um, hand cut, um, uh, poles like you take smaller trees maybe six inches wide and split them in half with a uh -huh. chainsaw and then put the flat sides down oh, okay and so if you're inside the rooms oh, so at, like at night when you look up you just see all these chainsaw marks and yeah it looks really cool yeah, oh, yeah, I yeah. Bet. but it also rains it, like it, when i was a kid it just would rain sawdust on you all the time because to build the roof <laughs> you had to be up there cutting and as you cut and place the logs then all that sawdust kind of chinked it yeah but it also kind of filtered through yeah, so like yeah. it started blowing the and gaps. the house moved it all then yeah you come I'm down to breakfast in the morning with sawdust in your hair. And yeah. It just sort of adds <laughs> to the effect though. Yeah. And probably it, had an amazing smell though. Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think just the organicness of looking up at like it's hand hewn logs. So you're looking at the peeling and the ax work and then the chainsaw work. So your eyes are just constantly, you know, it's, it's far more interesting than some drywall. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, rem it reminds me of like looking at old like circle saw and like a um, barn or something like exactly. that. Exactly. What, so is there like a tar layer or, or no? Initially it was, um, uh, newspaper shingles. So the, um, the newspaper in Fairbanks, the Fairbanks daily news miner used to print on these um, sheets of aluminum that were, you know, the size of a, a newspaper sheet. Okay. And at the end of the day, there'd just be stacks of these and they would practically give them away. And so my dad just collected all those and then went up there and shingled the whole thing. Wow. That's pretty rad. And then, yeah, over the years we've changed, we've updated it and then insulated it with foam. And, and so it's has, I think about three different roofs, um, kind of, uh, iterations yeah, to yeah. get to where it is yeah. now. And now the easiest is, um, rolled roofing, like asphalt roofing. So right. it comes in the big, like 80 pound rolls. Mm -hmm. and those are nice because I can just keep bringing a couple up each year until I have enough to do a whole roof and yeah. get up there and do that. And then the next step, I'll probably move on to actual tin roofing, but that's more difficult because mm. of the size. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you get that in? Yeah. But basically everything I'm trying to always think at least a year in advance yeah. because the bigger planes I can get in on the ice and, um, so I'll like right this, um, this spring I'll be staging for two more roofs next year, which will be steel. Okay. And so again, upgrading, but trying to get stuff in that's, that's big in the, in the springtime. And then, um, I do have a log mill up there now. So okay. then, then I'll start, um, basically my dog mushing season will start in a week and go till the, the beginning of April. And then I, then I start, um, cutting firewood <coughs> for the next year and working on that and make sure I have enough wood up there, not only for burning, but then also staging any logs I want to mill because right. I have snow machines up there, but of course that you can only run those till about the end of April before it gets too soft. Right. Right. Man, that's so cool. Do you have ATVs to run up there? 
No, Oops. I've really shied away from them because they just tear up the ground so much. Okay. Uh, okay. I have a couple of garden carts, and, and that's about the um, as much as I want to get into, you know, summertime wheeled stuff. And our the clients that I have up there really, you know, just want the peace and quiet of the area. And I, and I really try to do any big projects in the winter. It's so much easier to move stuff around. And, mm. um, and then the... Um, the tundra is real fragile, all the, the willows and lichens and stuff. And so anything you do in the summer, you're, you're leaving a mark for a long, long time. Yeah. That's great, man. That, that's gotta be kind of hard to, <coughs> um, I guess, um, stay, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Like true to that, that, mo- that mantra, right? Like you don't want to mess. It'd be so much easier to just get an Argo or something out there or side by side and be able to build trails and move stuff around. But you want it to be pristine, right? You want it to keep it. Yeah, but but then also the, the snow machine check technology has improved so much. I mean, we True. start one of the cabins we did build with an Elan up there, so these tiny oh, little, tiny okay. little snow machines. I think I had that up here. Is this the one right here, John? So like a guest cabin or something maybe? Or yeah, exactly. We, we call okay. that the guest suite there. And okay. um, that one's built uh, just across <coughs> from the other one. And that those logs were hauled by Elan, um, uh, cut the logs in March, and then brought them down mm. to the lake. And then there's kind of a sweet period in the season when the snow melts off the lake ice. But then you, the I, the lake ice is still dry and solid enough to haul stuff on it. And um, oh. so something like an Elan, which is a really small um, little skidoo machine, can pull a, a big log on, you, you know, just make like um, a couple of little skids for that and then just mm. pull one at a time. Just drag mm-hmm. it over there. Yeah. yeah. And that's, is that essentially from the main lodge going over that, like maybe that cove? There's, a, the there's an inlet to the lake right there. Oh, okay. So you cross over that and then. All right. It's a little shallow yeah. there? Uh, well, you actually have to get in a canoe to come to breakfast. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> but then it also means that clients can be right there on the edge of the lake and um, kind of have that whole place set up to themselves. In the summer, we have full running water, and mm. so they can have their own kind of um, in-suite bathroom, and then um, the idea is that you kind of feel like you've got your own cabin there, but yeah. but we're close by and can, can check up on them. That looks like the most amazing morning cup of coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you can watch the loons will be out front fishing, and sometimes yeah. a moose will come by, and it's just... Uh, in relation to this picture, where's the main cabin? Is it across? Um, you're kind of standing in front of it. Oh, okay, picture. gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. that's what I envisioned. Gotcha. That you were looking at, like you walk out of the front of the cabin and look across, and that's what you're seeing. Exactly. Okay. So people that are going there, are they going to mostly just hang out in the cabin? Or are they going there to hike around? The kind of clients that we get um, really like to see like kind of pinnacle ecosystems. So when I talk to them about other trips they've done in the world, they've th- they've been on like usually an icebreaker down to Antarctica. They've done some epic um, African safaris to like really be surrounded by big animals, big systems. So they they come to Alaska to see you know um, areas of huge amounts of mountains and glaciers, and they want to see the caribou. They just they just want to see really wild um, kind of pinnacle places, and so. When they come out with me, um, we've, we transitioned probably 10, 12 years ago to doing exclusive only. So when someone books, they get the whole lodge. We're not mi- doing mixed groups. Okay. And then oh. I do what I call kind of concierge guiding, which is they're kind of with me for, um, I'm a, I mean, I'm ava- available 24-7 to take them out and show them the area. And um, they just kind of want an immersive experience. So um, in the wintertime, I teach them how to um, 
mush their own dog team, fly dogs out there and just um, have the dogs out for the season, which is about six weeks. And then in the summer, again, we have about a six to eight week season and I don't have dogs out there then, but I'll um, teach them how to canoe if they want. But mostly um, we have a lake boat, like a, a river boat to get them out and just kind of float around the lake. And then also um, showing them the parks, gates of the Arctic and mm. Kobuk Valley national park. And that's, that's all I fly out. So they'll add on some flying, but then um, I don't fly, but um, I have a pilot that will come in charter out with uh, with me and then we'll um, either fly out to our cabins or just um, fly out land on a river have lunch and um, you know just kind of tell them about the area and then talking about it as we fly over and I always tell them like you know we can we can go all natural and walk around here if you've got all summer to go somewhere or we can jump in a plane in a couple of hours and, and see a lot more and and uh, so that's usually what they opt for is the the yeah, air, the aerial view. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's amazing. Have you established some hiking trails and stuff for those like more adventurous folks? I have a little bit, but it's uh, it's a lot of work up there because the more brush you cut, the more it grows. Yeah. And then, and I've really noticed kind of a greening up of that area in the the forty years that I've been out. There. Oh, really? Yeah, and and it's interesting talking to um, elders in the area because they'll they'll talk about taking these old machines, you know, like these early early skidoos through these passes, and and I think like, how did you do that? And then I realize they weren't fighting these alders they just wow. it wasn't nearly it's overgrown now up. yeah yeah. Mm. yeah it's warmed up a bunch and um it's green they're moving up yeah. the alders yeah i mean essentially what we're seeing is a recession of the ice age so mm-hmm. um the tree line is slowly moving north um where we are we're about 60 miles from from the tree line at 60 miles to the north of us and then um, we have a cabin that's about 30 miles past tree line oh and, and i've actually um transplanted little trees up there and they'll and they'll keep growing on the tundra but they they won't produce any cones they're they, they look like they're kind of like holy shit like, yeah what are we doing oh yeah, yeah. Right just barely holding on. yeah and they're like <laughs> yeah i had one that was doing pretty good and then a grizzly bear came by and just mauled it oh death. really yeah. oh what the hell so i i think he was like this <laughs> what's is this not thing supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this isn't what i'm used to seeing <laughs> yeah, let's test this out <laughs> they, had, <laughs> they had a good article on that actually um on the trees and everything that's moving north and even one on the um the beavers mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. that are encroaching up there are they you seeing beavers around there at all? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's hard to tell it's kind of a combination I think of climate change but also like um you know beaver fur used to be like one of the number one um modes of commerce and you you don't have people trapping for beaver like I've uh, a buddy of mine he bought his first super cup with beaver pelts and you know you, you could spend a lifetime trapping beaver and not afford a cub yeah you can't get enough yeah. money for that yeah so the the, uh, the price of beaver has dropped but also the price of cubs is skyrocketed so right just done the flip-flop yeah <laughs> which is which is a bummer because it i mean yeah. it's really great to think that you could just go out in a winter's worth of trapping and put away you know whatever forty five hundred dollars worth of beaver furs and go out and buy a cub and then start your alaska life and that those days are yeah what a cool story dude yeah. yeah, yeah, those are long gone, and all the good mushing meat from the the beavers. Yeah, I mean that's still a big deal. Beaver meat is is rocket fuel. Yeah. So I haven't tried it personally, but um, you know, dogs just love it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember Eddie talking yeah. about that. Eddie was all about it. It was like a Red Bull. Yeah. Like, give them a few chunks of that frozen meat, man, and they were just. Or he busted it on. They could smell the caster. They start yipping, yip, 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 yep. yip, yip. Get all excited. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised no one's done some little beaver snacks, you know. Oh, yeah. Going out hiking. Yeah. I'd be on to something. Yeah. <laughs> Come up with some good names. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That, that alone would be worth it. <laughs> 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 so what, running dogs, is that just one of those natural things that you got to get into when you're living 
in remote areas like that, or was that something you got to do when you're in Fairbanks? Well, I um, initially what I wanted to do was show people the Northern Lights, but then I was, you know, really want to promote like a 24-hour experience, and so mm. uh, that's what I see people coming to Fairbanks for the Northern Lights, and then they're hanging out in Fred Myers for the rest of the day, and um, and so I wanted to provide more of a full-time experience, and thought, you know, dog mushing, snowshoeing, skiing, that would be like the perfect way to round it out. Um, but I, I it's, it's, it took a long time looking for the right musher that would have good dogs to bring up there, and. Um, started working with uh, Brent Sass. Mm. Who's, Congratulations he, to him. He just won the Yukon Quest. Yeah, Yukon Quest. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's defending his title with the Iditarod this this uh, upcoming year. So he's been great to partner Better with. watch out for Eddie Burt. Yeah. we got a buddy who's going to be his first Iditarod. Yeah. He's a rookie. He's been on the show a couple times, and he's like, like you don't see young guys doing this kind of thing. And he's like a young guy that's getting into it, and it's going to be his first Iditarod. I think he won the – Connect two hundred. The Connect, and he got third. Mm -hmm. I want to say in the Yukon. I the think. Yukon and the Yukon. Yep. So there's some competition out there, yep. Brent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you well, there, up with there him again, though, huh? Yeah, I, I uh, uh, being in Fairbanks, I was uh, interested in the Yukon Quest when it, uh, you know, used to run all the way to uh, Canada and back, and um, so I was photographing it one year, and um, I see this guy coming up Eagle Summit, and he's southbound into Fairbanks, and. Um, Eagle Summit is one of the biggest climbs on the Yukon Quest. So it's a it's a place where um, mushers can really bonk. And oh. and I got up there early in the morning. I knew that the the way that the the times had worked out, it was going to be morning light. It was going to be great for pictures and then a chance to see a bunch of teams. And, and you have to hike in about a mile from the road if you want to actually spectate that area. Yeah, watch them pass by. Yeah, so I didn't want to go through all this work for like one musher. But I could see they kind of stacked up and, and it would be a good show. So I go out there. I hear these dogs barking and then I see this guy come up to the top and he's obviously been working hard. And this was, this was Brent. He parks his team at the top and he's, you know, congratulating him, give him all a rub down. I was like, yep, that's great. Took some pictures. And oh, then I, I expect him to pull the hook and take off and he sets the hook and, and leaves his team right there and then takes off running back down the mountain. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And, um, it turned out there was a, another musher who had stalled out and rather than just pass him and leave him on the hillside, cause basically, um, you know, the dogs are kind of balked at pulling. bottlenecks mm. everybody up when you do that too, right? Well, you're on kind of a hillside, so there's enough room to oh, go past. Oh, pass him. around, okay. But he couldn't handle the fact that, you know, this musher was kind of stuck. And maybe yeah. the dogs would sit there for a while and recover, but maybe not. And, and a lot of times, you just got to get the team going again. And then once they have that impetus, they'll keep going. And so he went down there and he just grabbed the front of the team and um, put an extra line on it and put it over his shoulder and started hollering at the dogs. And they like, all right, we got a new, you know, we got a new leader up yeah, front. And they yeah. all started kicking and they pulled this guy um, right up to the top. It was, it was William Cleden, this um, German musher out of Canada who actually had um, one prosthetic leg. So he couldn't really kick all that well to, oh, to get him. Okay. And so I saw He's that. He's probably down like, there struggling. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he was just stuck. And, yeah. and you yeah. don't want the team to turn around and run back down the mountain. Because, oh. again, once they get momentum, it's hard to turn them around. So, Oh, my goodness. And I was like, anybody that would, would take time out of their race to help another racer like that, is, that would be a guy to work with. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I think that's just like a true testament to <clears throat> the a love and a passion for the sport and what it is and for your brethren that are in it and the care for that versus, you know, yeah, you're in it to win it, but you also care about, another human being and their dogs 
you know, and, and them finishing it and getting through it, man, that's, that's a great story, man. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's that. the neat thing about these dog races is that you, um, as long as you're in the race, you can help any other mushers, mushers and there's no penalty to them. So, uh, you know, they're not allowed outside help, but musher to musher, they can help mm -hmm. out and, and they often do. And that's, you know, there's always a sportsmanship award at the end of each race that's voted mm -hmm. on by the mushers. <laughs> and so Brent had a stack of those and uh, the joke <laughs> for a while was like, you need to get out front. So you stop saving these guys. Cause he couldn't pass someone in trouble and, Oh, that's yeah. cool, man. Yeah, he, he's been great to work with. And then I work with a, uh, a buddy of his who runs the dogs. And so we, you know, we get these um, just, you know, fantastically trained dogs that he lives remote just outside of Fairbanks. So they're, but they're really well socialized. And um, it's just, it's, it's a great thing to be able to show um, people that come to Alaska that, that they can run their own team. And, and what we that's do is cool. just start them off with two dogs and then add add dogs as they get more comfortable mm. and then kind of based on their size and how far we're going, we'll, we'll figure that out. That's way cool, man. Do you have your own dogs? I have two of uh, Brent's kind of retirees. One of them okay. who did, had done a bunch of quests and uh, he's 11 now. And then another female who was kind of up and coming, but she didn't quite have the head for these big thousand mile races. And I stuff. got a video up on Instagram here. Is this your, is this your crew? Yep. Yep. Nice. That's, uh, and so you, you said two and it looks like you're on skis maybe. Yeah, I'm on skis. This is running the power line just outside of my house in Fairbanks. You're hauling ass. What are you doing? Like 12 miles an hour right there? Uh, I think that might have been pushing 20 going down that hill. Oh, wow. oh yeah, you're going. <laughs> oh, what, you are? Okay, yeah. What's the dog's names? Um, that's uh, Neon on the right and then Phoenix on the left. Man, I bet they love that right there. Yeah, they do. They you love know? they love to run and be in harness. And um, they, you know, when they see the harnesses come out, they get pretty stoked. Wow. Now, are you... I'm looking at that kind of general area. Are you kind of outside of Fairbanks, like in that, um, like Fox area? Is that kind of where it's you're in at? just above Goldstream area, which Gold is a big musher community? But okay. then, yeah, um, Goldstream leads to Fox, so it's, okay. it all kind of looks about the same. Just like running the highway, those like rolling kind of hills yep. there. That yep. looks like that area. Yeah, and to me, um, that's that's what Fairbanks is about. When you start to get outside the bowl a little bit, mm. um, people have bigger lot sizes, a lot yeah. of lot of space. Mm -hmm. um, often have dog teams. That's the Steese. That's well, off the Steese. Th this is off uh, kind of Goldstream Road, that area. Um, okay. And then yeah, then the Steese leads to another another part of Fairbanks as well. Okay. Okay. I Way love cool, that area. man. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I just love when you drive up in that area, and it's just it's just like endless rolling. Mm -hmm. It's like a true interior feel. Yeah. You know, like I love rolling into Fairbanks. You leave Nanana, you get through um, uh, past Skinny Dicks, go through the pass, and then it like you see the Tanana over there to the right, and you roll in. Of course, Fairbanks is Fairbanks, and then you roll through out of that bowl, as you mentioned, and then it like starts rolling back. That's like a real good, I don't know. It's like a true interior feel to me. Yeah, absolutely. I love that area. Did you say before we started you were playing hockey out there? Um, I did play hockey in um, in college uh, in oh, okay. men's league. And, um, yeah, it was on uh, – I'd always played kind of pickup games um, through uh, elementary and high school. Um, but, yeah, men's league was, was great, and I should probably get back into it. But um, they have the – each one, you know, kind of has its own sponsor. And I just got in with the plumbers and pipe fitters, and uh, they did a lot of beer drinking in the, yeah. <laughs> in the locker room before he got out. And then I was, I'm like, sure. the, the youngest guy on the team at the time, so they're, like, your center, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Is it a pretty big league? Is there, like – I, I have or no or? idea what it is now. I haven't played for a while, but, um, but yeah, the, and uh, men's and women's league is pretty big. Huh. Take it you got a lot of shifts. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, get back out there. You got lungs. <laughs> so <laughs> crack open another cold shot. Yeah. So when you're not running the lodge, what are you doing in Fairbanks? Well, I have, um, yeah, it's pretty idyllic life. I'm about six months of the year in uh, up at Inukuk and then six months in Fairbanks. And that six months in Fairbanks is um, a lot of it is logistics spent getting ready for the next season, mm. um, doing bookings. Um, we, we do all our own bookings, and we don't have like a um, – a booking form like i want to talk to everybody before they come up there really make sure that it's the right spot for them and um uh it you know it's expensive it's remote a lot of people are worried about being uh, essentially we're 200 miles north of fairbanks which is about two hours in a small plane so if you needed medical attention that's like a minimum of four hours mm -hmm. and uh you know if it was something big you're probably going to be medevac to seattle so it's just like on and on and on and and most of my clients have not experienced that kind of like extremely remote area and so mm -hmm. just like you want to prep them for hey this is the middle of the woods yep and i want I, and when i hear from them, i want their questions to be like you know how big is the lake and how tall are the mountains not like you know is it two ply toilet paper or four like yeah. when they start asking those questions like this probably <laughs> isn't right for you what's the like, wi-fi yeah exactly yeah. like how Should fast I bring is some it bug dope like oh yeah <laughs> yeah so <laughs> it, it, it's thermocell <laughs> and the cool part of that is that self-selecting the clients that show up are you know they're generally ready for that and they they want that and so they're really um uh, you know just curious about the world and and what's going up there and just being far out of their comfort zone so that that's a lot of fun and that um i wish you could see a bit more of that in alaska and then i also work hard to promote other owner operators and when they because oh. they'll, they'll ask me i mean alaska is essentially four or five states in one and and people have this idea like oh i could just i'll i'll stop in Juneau and then i'll run up to anchorage and then talkeetna and like wait 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 you got to slow your roll and and i always tell people pick an ecosystem like if you're into whales spend some time around juno you know hang out down there and if you really want to do the mountain mm. climbing thing then spend a you know season in talkeetna but um don't try to pile it all into one trip because you just get overwhelmed and and worn out i mean unless you know then unless you can really handle that but um ideally yeah i'll have um most of my clients are coming up to to just see the brooks range and then they're off doing something else and so i want that to be special and i want them to really have the time to soak it up and not be worried about waiting in line or you know mm. dealing with other people and and uh and thankfully we've built a business so that we don't have to do that and it's nice do some of them choose to uh drive to coldfoot and fly in from there or are they all flying from fairbanks in the in the wintertime, I can fly in straight from Fairbanks, but in the summertime, I fly out of Coldfoot. It's okay. easier because there is also a commuter that goes from Fairbanks to Coldfoot. Mm. So the logistics are a little bit easier that way, but they do have the option to drive up the road, and, and some like to do that. Yeah, I'd suggest that. Yeah, yeah it's it's amazing, though, the amount of people that, uh, even in Fairbanks, that haven't done that drive, that haven't gone farther north. I mean, it's it's burly. Like, you have to have a couple of spare tires, and oh, yeah. um, you can get mm. gas and cold foot, but that's it. So um, yeah. you've got to be prepared. Yeah. yeah, definitely. You might have to be prepared to help somebody else, too. That's yeah, I mean, I, I, I recommend carrying a radio so you can talk to the truckers, and then, yeah, being prepared to help somebody else out, for sure. What a gorgeous drive, though, isn't it? It's pretty cool, but to me, it, it starts in Coldfoot, like the good stuff, because then you enter the point. Brooks Range. That's a good point. I mean, you get into Adigan Pass, which is just <clears throat> mind-blowing. Everybody talks about um, going into Valdez, which is a, another amazing pass, but but Adigan is a whole other level. And and when you look at the engineering that that took, I mean, I just can't imagine someone walking up there and being like, yeah, we're going to put a road. put a road up here. <laughs> and, and a big-ass pipeline. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. just, it's crazy. And then... 
it's kind of like land of the lost. You pass through that, and all of a sudden the trees are gone. It's tundra. There's muskox. There's caribou. There's grizzlies and wolves, and they're just cruising the land, and they don't care about you at all. I mean, it is just. Uh, I think pristine is overused, but it's 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 land of the lost type area, and that I think that's so cool to to experience that. I love going up there in the springtime. Oftentimes, when my season ends, um, I'll go up there and and um, just just to spend time in that area. The caribou are starting to go up to their calving grounds, so if you're lucky, you can catch them headed north. And um, and of course, the wolves and and the grizzlies are starting to wake up. The wolves are are chasing after them for food, and so mm-hmm. you can, you can just be a bystander to these these movements of animals that are just epic. And that's like what like a early to mid Juneish type. No, that's I mean, if you want to actually ski and and oh, be able to oh, get around, oh, get, get that, into that's the, what I like because you oh, can I see. you can ski on crust um, that mm. that's really um, for pretty fantastic movement, like late April, early May. Oh, okay. In that area, and that's that's right when they start to head for the the cabin grounds, and then they'll cab in June, and and usually by the first or second week of May, then the the um, there's enough tundra that's ex- exposed, and you can't really move around much anymore on skis. I see. Yeah. And then you got like ten minutes, and the mosquitoes come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they get a whiff of that sweet spot there. That CO two. Yeah. I I like the. It seems kind of like after right about Gobbler's Knob. Is when it seems to really start to kind of roll, and you can see mm. the mountains. Yep, exactly. And then that gobblers knob, yeah, oh, gobblers man. Yeah. I was wondering how it got its name. Um, Me too. But, but then, yeah, right right doesn't it say on the sign there? Information deal there. I think it says on there. That's it, a really good it, place it to use does. the bathroom. I'll say. I'll tell you that it's one of the epic. It's one epic of the views. one of the few. I mean, that's, that's. I don't know after been. Bob's been in there for <laughs> an hour, but yeah, if someone's fresh out of Coldfoot Cafe, you know, you don't want to be behind it. <laughs> Just had a double double uh, Coldfoot burger. <laughs> uh, I might have a photo of that, Daniel. Of Gobbler's see. Knob. The the like little information deal because there's a pump station. There's a really popular pump station. Or a big pump station that's pump, like pump right. Pump five is right there. Pump mm. five, yeah. Yeah. And then that's also the cutoff of the ice road into Bettles. And that's how I kind of started. Oh. I started my winter trips by bringing um, snow machines in that way. So it's about 30 miles from the road into Bettles there. And that ice road opens for about a month or six weeks a year. And that's it, it's a pretty unique thing that the locals will build that ice road themselves. And then, oh, wow. then use that as a chance to... Um, truck in fuel for the whole year and then uh and then it'll generally shut down by the end of april can you google it i know you're looking on your phone but oh that's fine. Be a little faster oh on the gobbler's knob yeah oh yeah i guess so yeah i was oh. just gonna try and pull up i want to see what, what actually what pops up when you put that in there <laughs> the first thing you have to write alaska <laughs> for the first one real fast the first one that comes up is in re outside oh, there the it is gobbler's knob alaska there we go the turnout? Yeah, just go oh, images. Oh, there you go. Go images. Okay. Let me back up. Let me back up here. A lot of the places on the Dalton are, um, you know, named after people that didn't make it or stacked up a big rig or something. So I'm trying to avoid that. Mm. Yeah, there's like an information. Like, um, what do you call those? Like, Let's say what, why it got named or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that picture on the top right is so epic right here yeah that's what i'm talking about oh yeah that's cool like this is kind of when you're coming down off the knob i guess essentially yeah looking at the range as you're you kind of approach kind of where the range is starting and it's like another maybe like half an hour maybe 40 minutes before you start getting the mountains yeah at that point you're about 45 miles from cold foot and then and then cold foot's where, where you're like in the brooks range 
Yep. It's, I love, I love, love, love that area. Yeah, it's amazing, man. I want to take the family up there. I've only been up there for hunting and stuff a few times, but I feel like I want to take the wife and kids up there just to check it out. Yep, it's pretty cool. And then fall time, the colors are just amazing. And the cool thing up there is that you can you, you can hit fall, and it hasn't even happened in Fairbanks yet. And then you come to Fairbanks, get another fall. Yeah. Come down yeah. to Anchor, <laughs> right, third right. fall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you do. What'd you call it? Land of the Lost? Land of the Lost. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's really good. Cool. You do any float trips up there? I used to. Um, I've kind of um, gotten more and more of a, a clientele that's, you know, wants to stay closer to the cabins mm-hmm. and do more flight seeing. But um, uh, we started off um, doing uh, big game guiding and then some outfitting. And okay. Then, and then occasionally we'd guide on uh, some of the major rivers in that area. Uh, initially, actually, my father's business started off as a Latina guide service. Okay. And the Latina is, is um, one of the premier wild and scenic rivers that kind of cuts the whole Brooks Range in half. Mm-hmm. And we have that's where our other um, in-holdings are, one at the very headwaters of the Alatna, and then another one about uh, halfway down across from the Aragich Peaks. Okay. So, um, yeah, I've floated those rivers and then um, snow machine a bunch um, on, on either side of that. If there was, like, a family float, what, what river would you do? If you can only do one. I, I usually recommend like the John River because um, it's one of the cheapest access because you can take one of these commuter flights from uh, Fairbanks up into the village of Anictuvik Pass okay. and then just walk down the runway and jump in the river. And then, I mean, it's not quite that easy, but relatively speaking to the Brooks Range, and then you can float down the John River and end up back in Bettles and Evansville and, oh, then, and okay. then catch that commuter again back to Fairbanks. Yeah. So you don't have to um, charter yourself, and that that makes a big difference because air charter is just, it just keeps going up and up. And, yeah. Uh, that's quite a way. What is that? Almost 100 miles? Um, that's river? P- that's probably more like 150 river miles. Yeah, that's a long float. That's a long wow. ways. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, what? Yeah, and you cover neat terrain since you start um, more or less above treeline and then... Yeah, grayling? Yep, grayling and pike. And uh, yeah, depending on what time of year, you might see some chum as well. Because mm. that's pretty much the only salmon run that's still is like prevalent that runs up through the Yukon and then... We get kings into our area and chums. Oh, really? You still yep, get kings? But not, not in big numbers. No, and but you can, can yeah, you spot get, them from the plane in the creeks. Yep. And okay. we, get, we get kings that actually will come into Inukuk even after they've spawned. I'd so. love to hear that. What about yeah. shefish? Shefish are in the Alatna, but they, they won't make it all the way up to us. But um, then uh, the Kobuk is the best known for shefish. <coughs> but then uh, the Alatna does have a run. It's just not very accessible. So um, it doesn't get fished very hard, and they're not quite as big as they get in the Kobuk. Mm. Maybe not no. so so much of a food source. Yeah, and not. Uh, I don't think the ones uh, in the Aladdin. I, I would assume that they don't go all the way to the ocean because it seems like such a long way river wise. Right. Whereas the ones in the Kobuk and you know, like right now, guys. Yeah, there's spawners that are going back and forth. And yep, and they're mm-hmm. right now, Kotzebue is ice fishing for them, and then mm-hmm. okay. go back in, you know, back up the river. Yeah, they're fishing them in that, like that brackish where the salt m- fresh mix and freezes, and they're ice fishing that. Yeah, kind of like and, that, and I think they're in full salt water as well. I mean, it seems like yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all in Kotzebue Sound there. Mm-hmm. The sound, that's what I meant. Yeah, Kotzebue Sound. Well, that's kind of where they'll harvest the vast majority of them. Yeah, I would say because it's the easiest. I mean, if you if you continue, I mean, for, for locals who are like subsistence wise, actually harvesting the meat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Never yeah, tried I mean, it. Have you tried it? No, yeah, I haven't. Have you? No. 
John? Oh yeah, it's 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 uh, the it white. It's white meat. Um, it's really light. It's like uh, even lighter than halibut as far as picking up any kind of seasonings. My favorite is to just um, give it a really light alder smoke. Mm. And then, uh, you, yeah, you can eat it just barely cooked and it's, it's delicious. It looks like it'd be super bony. It is, but they're big bones. Okay. So mm. easy to you get can that pick out. them out of there. Yeah. yeah. You can eat the meat and then pick it, pick it out of your teeth like a toothpick. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we have a competition Caveman. in our house with the bones. It's funny. Whenever we eat salmon. What is it? Just whoever gets the most. Oh, gets the most? <laughs> nice. It's not who gets them the fastest? Yeah. My wife's smart. She always gets the tail brush. She gets none. It's always is cleaning a she fish kind of similar to a pike? No, not at all. I mean, okay. the, the she fish are so much bigger and a lot less bony. I mean, they're, they are bony, but they have big bones. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, a small she fish would be like 10 pounds. So they're, yeah. um, and they get up, I think trophies at around 50 pounds. They, yeah. they get big, big females, right? Yep. Yeah. And then they don't have any teeth on like a pike. Mm. So, um, I mean, it's crazy to have a fish that big and you can just grab, grab it by mouth. the jaw mm. and no <laughs> problem. Oh, no, but it's like it, that big around. Yeah. Pull a picture it, it's like, oh. a, it's like a box on the front, um, really square and bony. So sometimes they're hard to catch cause it's hard to set a hook in that bone. Versus a pike, which is just inhaling stuff. But then you've got all those teeth to deal with and all those bones. And then um, they have huge scales, and they're just not nearly as slimy as a pike. So it's a much kind of cleaner fish, and um, they fight a lot more. I mean, you're generally catching them in rivers, so they do a really good job of tail walking and using the river to, to help um, get away. Oh, finding, get the, away. Yeah, mm. finding the stream and, and the current and pulling on your heart exactly yeah and, and you know pike will give you a good fight for like 30 seconds and yep then they, and yeah. then they, they're, done. they're done yeah yeah uh, what kind of lures are you using or flies like nice, what are you doing nice um you can fly fish for them the the biggest issue is to try to get out into the pools where they are and they, they tend to sit down almost on the bottom okay and then they'll see something and they'll come up and nail it okay so if you are fly fishing, it's usually better to get out in a pack raft and, and get out in the deeper water mm-hmm. and then use something like a sinking line that'll get you down in there. So you're, you're, you're fly fishing, you know, you could use a fly rod, but, but you're stripping, you're, like you're stripping. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. not. Damn, look at that harvest. Oh, wow. That's that one's harvest right there. Wow. That's good. Aren't they endangered? Not that I know of it. They're pretty healthy. They are? Okay. There's a tank That's right what the there. limit They just is? aren't around a lot. So okay, they're just you know, not as it. not as prevalent. Everywhere. Right, they're they're just in a few areas. There actually are some in uh, into the Fairbanks area along the Chattanooga, mm. um, but they're smaller. And then, like I said, the the Kobuk has the biggest ones. Have you ever heard of the winds of the Chattanooga? <laughs> <laughs> That's an insight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were on a we were has. on a float <laughs> up there on a on a, and uh, not on the Chattanooga, but. And uh, one of those where the wind's coming and it's just basically pushing you up river. And we just started just calling it the winds of the Shat because that was the only river we knew around there. And so it's just the thing, the winds of the yeah. Shatanika. Oh, and now yeah. my kids are like, it's the winds of the Shat. <laughs> <laughs> so those interior rivers can be brutal because they're, you know, they're so flat that they just meander. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the Alatna is like that. You'll, you'll be coming down and you're facing south and then all of a sudden you're facing north and then south and then north and then south. Oh, because the wind's just pivoting your boat around? No, because the, the, the oh, drop Oh, because it's, it's the way it's... Yeah. it's uh, just oh, meanders, yeah. 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 Okay, And then you gotcha. get that wind and it's like, oh, I'm in the wrong way. Got to go around this corner. I always tell people, like... You're in the land of 24-hour sun, so you know don't think you have to go during the day, which is usually when the winds are. They'll calm down at night. Oh, so it's a, float oftentimes night. floating at night, you'll oh. see more animals. You, yeah, it's a whole for different sure. light. Yeah, and uh, you just gotta 
you know, throw the clock out the window, take your watch off. And, yeah. And yeah, don't worry country. about that. That's pretty Just cool. take naps. But if you want yeah. shoulders like these, the wait till the wind going. kicks up. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back and get back into some more action. Barney Sports Chalet, supplying hunters with the best hand-selected gear since 1963. Barney specializes in supplying hunters with the absolute best Alaskan-proven gear on the market for some of nature's most rugged and demanding terrain. Whether you're headed to the remote volcanic islands of the Alaska Peninsula in search of a brown bear, or the shale-infested glacial valleys of the Brooks Range for dull sheep, it is critical you choose the right gear for your dream hunt. Don't miss Barney's exclusive brand, Frontier Gear of Alaska. Tested from the high mountains of Tajikistan to the extreme conditions of Alaska, these products were designed for high performance and durability. Frontier Gear was derived from decades of experience hunting big game in Alaska. Paired with other top brands, it provides you the absolute best gear selection anywhere in the world. Stop in at Barney Sports Chalet in Anchorage on Northern Lights or check out their custom website and reference tool at barneysports.com. The Alaska chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. BHA is the voice of our Alaska public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to engagement with boots on the ground projects from Kotzebue to Ketchikan. BHA performs public land cleanups, hunting and fishing clinics, and community education to help take your game to the next level. BHA's community-minded goal is to uphold our hunting and fishing legacy while keeping wild lands wild and fostering the next generation of sportsmen and women for years to come. Make sure to follow BHA Alaska for upcoming events, local brewery pint nights, and more. Stand up for Alaska public lands and waters by supporting the Alaska chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Join us today at backcountryhunters.org. The Treehouse AK, your one-stop dispensary located at 341 Boniface Parkway. Be sure to ask the bud tender about their deal of the day because honestly, there's always something good on deck. And guys, listen, this is where the culture lives. At the Treehouse, their dedication to servicing consumers has been developed through a lifetime of involvement in the cannabis culture. They're committed to providing the highest quality products at whatever value your budget affords, while always maintaining the deep-rooted principles that have carried them this far. Their focus is on relationships over transactions, and you can always depend on them to treat you with the respect you deserve. Hit them up at thetreehouseak.com, and remember, you must be 21 years of age to enter their store. Total Truck and Alaska Overlander, Alaska's premier supplier for custom automotive accessories and overlanding products, providing all-inclusive rental vehicles and trailers custom outfitted to explore the Alaskan backcountry with a unique and convenient traveling experience. At Total Truck, you can find brands such as ARE, RSI Smart Caps, Goose Gear, iCamper, Front Runner, Rigid Lights, Rhino Linings Bed Liners, and everything you need to outfit your truck or SUV. Alaska Overlander provides 4x4 vehicles and expedition trailers custom modified for Alaskan adventures and outfitted with rooftop tents, fridges, and all the camping and cooking gear you need to start exploring. Visit them at alaskaoverlander.com. It looks all like rusted. You, you, have you seen like when people take the pipeline and then they cut the shape of Alaska out of it? Yeah. And, the, and that's what this is right here. This is what that looks like. It looks like the... Oh, with, like, with like the texture, the lines? Yeah, the lines in it. Okay. Yeah. Kind of like the clock in my house. Chad used to do a bunch of those. I have the Alaska clock. 
Oh, yeah. Chadillac? Yeah. Yeah. But he had some of the ones from the pipeline pieces. That's pretty nice. I didn't They're know like really, had that. really thick. Yeah. Chadillac. Still building airboats? Yeah. He's got big into that. Oh, really? Yeah. That's like his main business now. He's doing, doing airboats and airboat. doing like. Um, <clears throat> Different things to boats, uh-huh. and even like he did a really like fabrication cool fabrication stuff? stuff for them, um, and fabricating even things for like my like the six by six, like building like the box and stuff mm-hmm. in the back and mm-hmm. brackets and stuff oh, like okay. that. That seems to be like where that business is going. Sweet, which is good for him because he's into being doing yeah, that he kind of st- do rad out that outside stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was pretty amazed when he said he put a Hellcat like a Dodge Hellcat engine in his airboat. Wow. Well, he's turned what? it into like basically a show, like air show. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be at the boat show or whatever they uh-huh. do. It's that thing is oh, like put something in there. Yeah, that's Sick. that thing is amazing. I've been trying to get him to take me to go rip it up Connect or something. Yeah, go test it out and just Sounds blow my intense. ears off. Man, that'd be fun. <laughs> Some headphones, man. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure you can. <laughs> I've never been on an airboat. I never no. have either. Either no, no, me John? either. Nope. I've always wanted to. I mean, I see guys with their videos and the shit they can get into. It's so loud. I've Dude, been I'm in like airboat country with my boat, and I was oh like yeah, seeing airboats around. I'm like, oh, I'm probably not supposed to be up here. Yeah, yeah. And then those tight corners <laughs> they're on, water. and it's just like it's so loud, and you know they're there, but you're like, do they know I'm here? And then you're like, where should I yeah. go? Oh man. But luckily, like they can run in such shallow water, they can get around you pretty quick. Deshka's pretty. Jessica, yeah, yeah, known for yeah, that. Yeah. Did, did you guys, I don't know if you saw it. There was some stuff on Instagram or Facebook or whatever last summer. So our boy Joe Lorenzen got into a real nasty hang up on 20 mile uh-huh. or placer. In an airboat? I think it was 20 mile. Yeah. Going up to the glacier? Or? Coming down, I believe. Oh, okay. And he, what the fuck did he do, man? He sank. Came up on a log, and I think he ran the boat up on, and then it went back down into the river. Oh. Yeah, that's so usually like, when you get in trouble is coming down river because then the current just fills up the back. and you're That's sunk. what it was. Yep. And then he got hung. And so the boat was like partially sank. Got him and his girl on his gear off because he had dry bags and mm-hmm. coolers, and he was able to get everything floating over to the shore. And then he had some other buddies come out. With saws and then cut the log and then they got the boat back off, mm-hmm. back floating, pumped the water, ended up getting it running and getting mm-hmm. it out of there. But it was just a nice, beautiful boat ride day. Yeah. You know, and they went camping and shit and mm-hmm. then it could have turned into a fucking tragedy. Oh, yeah, totally. And I'm like, damn, man, I've heard like coming around corners and boats smacking each other yeah. and or hitting rocks and stuff, but never that. Like, I didn't think anything of that, and so I'm intimidated at the idea of airboating. Yeah, I, me I mean, too. I, I want to go with somebody that's really good at it and go for the ride and try it out. Yeah. But um, the idea of actually operating one, it's kind of like flying a, a small aircraft. Like, I have – I, it's crazy it may sound. I have zero interest in, like, becoming a pilot or flying a Cub or a Cessna or any of that kind of stuff because I don't want the responsibility. Mm-hmm. It just seems like – so many variables and things that can go wrong. I just don't even want any. You, you gotta mean, spend so much time doing it. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's it. exactly it. Yeah. And so it's like once you, you're a family guy. So it's just like you great know, point, man. You get one hobby then, or a bunch of hobbies. Yeah, so, it feels like know. that would be like the only hobby 
pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And that's what I try to do with my friends. I have like the pilot guy and I have the, the mechanic guy. It's like the A team, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. You be good in what you do and then come along on the trip. That's like, right. That's it, yeah. We don't that's have to all try to be that guy. Yeah. yeah. It's like having a, like your boat friends. Like I've got my saltwater buddy. He's got the big saltwater boat. And then I got a Kenai buddy. He's got the Kenai boat. Right. I don't have an airboat guy yet. I got raft raft guys. I'm the jet boat guy. So it's like everybody has their, their yeah. place. I think so, that's the key to success. When you hear people yeah. getting in trouble, they went outside, you know, of their expertise. Right. Oh, I'll just do this on the weekend and then. Yeah. Yeah, they trouble. don't have enough practice or whatever it is. Like you're not going to see me jumping on one of these Alaskan Outfitter rafts like you guys have and jumping on the Kenai and just like first try, jump out there and do a float. I'll be in a sweeper fucking hella vacuum myself out of there like not happening yeah you're right about that you got to kind of choose your lane and yeah. you be know proficient in that and then hope mm, that you can proficient. find friends yeah that are yeah. proficient in some of the other activities you want to do yeah i want to do the floating but i don't want to row i just want to go yeah. on the float and and tear down set up camp call yeah. cook dinner well it's still good know, to learn how that. to do it like i was telling my wife yeah. this year like this is your year to learn how yeah. to float because I'm trying to fish. Yeah. Well, and what if you can't got fish hurt or sick? Though. That's right. That's right. And if you something know? happens, yeah. like who's going to yep. oar us out yeah. of here? Mm -hmm. You know, right. like right. we need to be able to like take over in case something happens. Well, and you want to take you want to do the Golcano with them too, right? Yeah, I'm going to do the Golcano. Yeah. yeah. So, and yeah, so yeah, I'm not trying to oar the entire Golcano. Yeah. There's <laughs> also like another part where like if you have passengers that know how to row and you're you're rafting either a river that you've never run before or that's had like um, new channels or something um, drastic happen to like the normal run that you do. Um, when you have people in your boat that know how to paddle, then they anticipate the issues when you do. And so mm. if you are going to have like a disaster, they're going to be making the good decisions with you or just and you're not having to tell them with. what to do. Yeah. Um, like shifting weight or like we have to bail cause we know we're going to get sucked under this or your high side or whatever it is. But it, you know, in, in learning to row is fun. So it, it's mm. something like, I bet you like if you floated the goal canner or something with us, like, Oh, I would do day it. Day one, you'd I mean, be like, oh, let me row. I want to yeah, be on the stakes. I'm not saying I, w I mean, I just feel like if it was a high stakes moment or something where, you know, this is a pretty gnarly corner, this is some gnarly uh, rapids or something, yeah. like, I don't want none of it. But to at least learn maybe just the one on ones and, and yeah. some of the major, like, main maneuver type things. I feel like I want to have the skill, but I certainly am not ready to just throw my family no. on a raft and go Hell for no. it this yeah, weekend. No. Like, yeah, yeah. Not happening. Yeah. I've heard plenty of stories about Kyle's corner and, and you know, Josh's <laughs> sweeper and all yeah. that. <laughs> uh, Help! Yeah. Plenty Help! Of, plenty of that. Plenty yeah. of that for sure. That's right. uh, yeah, you don't want a band named after you. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> or a sweeper, yeah, exactly. That usually means things didn't go well. No, no, it's not a good thing. You want the holes named after you. That's it. <laughs> That's exactly. Yeah, because you got the largest king or the most rainbows that most day. Most steelhead, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Skijoring. That's the word. Skijoring. Skijoring. That's what you do with the dogs? Yep. Yeah. What is, what is that? Skijoring? Skijoring. Yeah, skin is a Scandinavian word. Okay. It just, it just means going too fast on skis, I think. Yeah, pretty oh. much. <laughs> did did Bjorn make that? 
Oh, Bjorn was definitely a ski jord. Bjorn had something yeah, to do with it. Ski jord, probably. <laughs> yeah, we we grew up ski joring uh, with lab, not with you know a mushing dog. Well, it's funny, like not there. not every mushing dog is comfortable with it because it's like having two knives behind you, basically. As yeah. a, as far as the dog's oh. concerned, right, right. Okay. Like they can handle the sled and then the whole team, but the other thing is like a, a lot of sled dogs haven't been out front. Like you have your lead dogs, oh right, then you have your swing mm. dogs, and then and then you have your um, dogs closer to the sled and uh, your wheel dogs, and so they're they get comfortable in those positions. They're used so, to their lane. Exactly. This is what yeah. I do. This is my job. Yep. Mm. So you get a couple of retired dogs, and you're like, oh, these guys are sled dogs. We're gonna go ski drink, and then they're like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, first of all, it's like that, having two man. knives behind you, and you're. I've heard it as you know, like the cross-country skiing itself is not exactly that rigid. Like there's a lot of flopping around, and, right? And uh, so yeah, there's 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 something to it and getting the dogs used to that. But with sled dogs, usually if you introduce them slowly to something carefully, they'll they'll they can handle it. You just mm. don't want to freak them out. Yeah, all right, cool. Nothing and you're always doing it with the classic skis. Um, I do. Yeah, I mean, you could. Um, I know some people are using these um, uh, kind of like ski shoes. The they have like a felt in the middle, mm -hmm. and those are getting a little bit more popular. They just don't slide really fast enough generally. So okay. The nice thing about those is you can get uh, in deep snow, cruise around, and then kind of downhill a little bit, but not all that great. Okay. The biggest issue with cross country skis is you can't stop very well. Oh, normally no. if you're dog sledding, you've got a brake and a snow hook yeah. to stop that team. Okay. And now, like on these pictures of me running the power line, the little pep talk before I do that with the dogs, like we're in this together. We all run straight through. Cause <laughs> yeah. if you guys see a tarm again or a grouse and you want to go in a different direction, dad dies. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or it's just like, yeah. you know, knees and hips are coming apart. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh and, uh, my goodness. Yeah. Can't have any squirrel over. action going yeah. on. No. Yeah. They're getting it there. <laughs> Usually what I do is, um, unclip for my harness. Okay. And then I take, oh. if it gets too steep and then I take the poles and, and they're one hand so I can pitch the poles, I can let the dogs loose and then I can cartwheel on my own. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's <laughs> you have right. a chance of surviving. <laughs> do you have the new skis with the, the metal edges again? Um, yeah, I have, uh, yeah, kind of need like a whole quiver for Fairbanks because uh -huh. we get a wide range of weather, especially now we're getting more ice events. So you, yeah, you do want to have some metal edges ideally with, uh, for ski journey with the dogs and you don't need anything that's super fast. Like if you're a, just a cross country ski guy, you're going to have something super light. Then you got to get the, the spandex suit and the yeah. Oakleys and all that. And that, yeah. that's a whole nother ball game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there any skibioring like boarding? Just made that up. I don't think you'd be able to do that because because you're like being you're like the dogs that are assisting you. You know, like you're not just getting. Oh, pulled. you're not just getting pulled. Okay. Well, so it depends on how many you have, but again, the problem is stopping. So like, but you could stop easier on a snowboard, I think, with your face. Yeah. But you're not. There's no break. You turn it. Oh, you turn yeah, it, and then they just it, pull yeah. you right but on your face. But the dog like, would just yeah. keep pulling. But it, that makes sense because you can't like get going yeah. on your own. So you're like helping oh. up the hills and stuff, right? And yeah, you're pushing yeah. with your skis. Yeah. And Got it's it. also okay. like, where's your pull ful fulcrum coming from? Because either like you have a handle and you're holding on with your hands, which means it's up high, or you're attached to your waist. Yeah. So it's like midsection, but it's still not like coming off the board. So gotcha. It's, like when we'd ski jar with toke, we the reason I asked that is because we would do it with skate skis not classics that makes sense and so like i feel like you're like at least for me i'm way more comfortable with skate skis because they have good edges but these but the really good metal edge classic skis you can also like snow plow and yeah they, like, they make more like kind of a touring ski a little bit wider a little bit thicker yeah and that's what you're using um yeah some sometimes it kind yeah. of depends on conditions yeah 
And that's what mm. you would use if you're like up in the pass. Yep. Yeah. Sure. In the brooks range, like on the, on the ice. Yep. And then yep. you can, um, you can also carry skins for those, which makes it more versatile, especially if you're like caribou hunting yeah. and you want to pack something out. Right. Then that's, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Man, that's like really using the crossing. Like we go in the park, right. For fun. Like we're not really using yeah, them yeah. and it's just like the dream is to like use all your gear for real shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like out in the middle of the woods. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, like exactly. You know, exactly. going to the Brooks Range and you're like yeah. kind of caribou, and you, you have to cross country ski it out. Subaru and go, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't have a Subaru, but yeah. Thanks, thanks. You look like you have a Subaru. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's I a compliment. Think, I think that's the first time anyone's ever told me that, Kyle. But thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, does Fairbanks want a Costco? We have one. Fairbanks has a Costco. Oh, hell yeah. They have double shovel in their Costco. They do. Oh yeah. I didn't Where's know the that? Costco? Yeah. yeah. It, it's where the um, Sam's Club was uh, oh. when there was that big liquidation. I think twenty five or thirty Sam's Clubs across the U.S. went under, and then and they went into there. Costco was in there within like six months. They just had to repaint it. Like over there, where like Sportsman's is, and and that Except, yeah. that kind of newer area yep. over there, Bentley Mall area. Okay, Johansson Expressway right there. Very good. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Is that recent? No, I think six back. or eight years, maybe. Oh, sorry, guys. Oh, shit, man. I, did, I didn't know that either. So do you know about this Fairbanks <laughs> pot roast recipe? I don't. So this is like, become contagious in Anchorage lately. Uh, I've had at least four different friends either cook or tell me they just cooked this Fairbanks pot roast where they, you know, put the roast in, kind of like you would do a normal roast, but then they dump a whole jar of pepperoncinis in. Have you, you haven't had this? I've never heard In Anchorage, everyone's calling it the Fairbanks pot <laughs> roast, but it is good. That oh, sounds amazing. It is. It's really good. Yeah, Tangy was the first one, the fish, and a bunch of other guys. So, yeah. Just, just pour the whole thing in there. Yeah, the whole Fairbanks jar. Fairbanks pot roast? Yeah. That's is what, this I mean, this is what, thing? This I mean, is what the Anchorage people are telling us, but oh. are eating, but they're all connected so to the, Fairbanks. Like, the for people in Fairbanks told them this. You know, each of them different people. Are we sure in about Fairbanks. that? Absolutely. <laughs> I can well, name names. Uh, when, whenever <laughs> someone asks me what the best restaurant in Fairbanks is, I always say it's someone's home. You know, oh, good get them to crack open a freezer and come up with their pot roast recipe, yeah. their slow cook, mm. whatever. Yeah. Once you get a barbecue going in Fairbanks, you're going to see some good food. Yeah. We need to go up answer. and eat some Fairbanks food. The only thing I eat in Fairbanks is that Pizza Hut on the way back home. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even eat local? <laughs> no, because no, no. if I'm in Fairbanks, that means I was just in the woods for like yeah. 12 days eating you know, it's freeze dried, and for yeah. some reason, I want the nastiest, greasiest pizza. Pizza, absolutely, just to get sick. Yeah. By the time you get to Talkeetna, yeah, love it. Yeah, <laughs> we ate that it. one pizza uh, after a sheep hunt, man. You can't beat it. There's a breakfast joint that we went to one time. Oh, that's a pretty good place. What was Cisco and Scotty? Yeah, I don't uh, know what it's called. It was well known for its like crepes or something like that. Crepery. No, that's like an old fashioned <laughs> name. Sour, like a sourdough. Sourdough Sam's? Uh, maybe that's it. That was an institution for a while. It went under. No, okay. no, no. Sourdough Sam's is where I've taken you a bunch of times. Okay. Is that what it used to be about? like Susie's or whatever at one point. The one right before college. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was my spot. That was my spot. Yeah, you're the one that took me there. Yeah. Chicken fried steak, man. That was yeah. a good greasy spoon, man. Yeah. That, that was, was a good spot. That was an institution. There was like real Fairbanks people. <laughs> and it burned there. down once, which is also the hallmark of a good restaurant in Fairbanks. Oh, yeah. 
All that grease burned up to, on the back. Yeah, to, yeah. Yeah. The splatter. <laughs> yeah, had, you need a good roof burn once in a while, and it cleans all that out. And then, oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, freshen it up. Yep, exactly. Remodel. Yeah, they had like, you know, uh, Grenda and Pam, Wanda. You know, they were the waitresses there. Oh, Glenda, a good Glenda. Glenda a good Glenda. Yeah, yeah. you know, they don't Gre- name, they don't name kids that anymore. Mm-hmm. Gertrude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's, okay, I'll stop. <laughs> uh, let's jump into the Brooks Range um, No Road to Ambler deal. Um, you know a I, little bit about that? I do, yeah. that's um, That's been a bit of a, a thing for, I think, going on like just over 10 years now. Has it really been that long? Well, the, the recent inception of it i mean it's been bounced the concept has been bouncing around probably since statehood um there's there's all there's like, like there, there are maps of alaska that are covered in spaghettis of roads but um yeah the the parnell administration in about 20 10 or 12 kind of started kicking that concept around and, and originally it was going to be a dot thing and it would be like a, a legit road but the the locals in the area didn't want anything to do with that um you know the idea that it would be public access which has kind of been a, a sticking point ever since the dalton highway came in because that was promised to not be public access and now it is so yeah i read a a piece on um in the latest news tab gentleman from uh Cotsbue. Uh, let me see. I think I have it on the tab here. This is on the website. On the yeah, he had mentioned website. about how it was promised that the Dalton Hall Road was not going to be public, and it was. Would you say ten years after it was correct? Yeah, yeah, and that's because of lawsuits that well, ended there, up happening. There were, federal funds it? were used. So anytime you use federal public money, mm-hmm. then yeah, the, the public does have a right to it. So essentially what happened is I believe the state of Alaska sued to, to open it up. So it was kind of the strange thing where these promises were made, which what happens a lot in these situations. One sure. entity makes a promise and another entity comes in and says, well, they didn't know what they're talking about and mm-hmm. throw, throws all that out. So that's, I, I mean, I could easily see that happening with this uh, Ambler proposal as well. Yeah, especially when you're talking about the funding that's going to be provided to build it, the 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 fight that folks are going to want to access it. Yeah, and really, the, I mean, the Ambler Road came about when there were um, this this like glut of what they called zombie made mega projects at the time under the Parnell administration. This was like Knick Arm Access. This was the Juno mm-hmm. Road. This was the Susitna Watana Dam, mm-hmm. uh, Ambler Road. Like all these things that were just these pie in the sky projects. But no one would say, okay, we need to just pick one, one that's viable and one that would benefit the most Alaskans that has like you know real chance of economic success. And, and I think it's a, it's a problem in Alaska with having a, a, a state that's full of resources but really low on people. So it's easy to get just a couple of people that gin up this idea and say, well, this is great, let's go with it. And then it starts to get momentum. And the next thing you know, um, you know, it's kind of like the emperor with no clothes. No one wants to call it out and say this is, you know, this is ridiculous. And, and somehow the, the Ambler Road proposal has survived all these other zombies and it and mm. just keeps staggering on. And it keeps, you know, milking the state for uh, a few million each year. But again, it's, it's kind of one of these things. We've got the Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority, which is this, this sort of like quasi-private company inside of the state of Alaska. It was initially started with state funds with the idea that um, if there was someone 
some group that could kind of operate inside the state, but without having to worry about all these other issues, they could get more done. And, and I think initially it was a good idea, but it's, it's been um, sort of kind of bastardized by the different political systems and the different mm. people in power. And, uh, and so now it's, it's, you know, it's the usual cronyism and, and picking these um, projects that are not necessarily a good idea. And that's, and that's kind of what we're seeing with Ambler Road proposal, which is a 200-mile, well, about 210-mile proposal that would take off from right around Pump 5 on the Dalton mm -hmm. Highway and then cut straight west. Right um, by the Gobbler's Knob. Right, right off yeah. Gobbler's Knob. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And and basically skirt the southern edge of the Brooks Range and then make it out to this area that has a, a mineral belt called the Ambler Mineral Belt. And that area was discovered in the late 50s early 60s it's it's known to have copper and and quite a few other metals but they're they're totally stranded so it's one of these things where everyone says well if we could just get a road out there but it, i mean i'm sure there's minerals on the moon too it's just uh, they're not very accessible so yeah now is the main stickler on that um as i've done you know a little bit of research on it that basically the the state is going to pay for this i mean Taxpayers are going to pay for this, but they're not going to be able to access the road. And so the beneficiary is only the mining company. It's not even that. I mean, it's more complicated than that because with ADA, they have the seed money that came from the state, but now theoretically they're kind of self-sustaining. So they have have certain projects that have, have, um, have been revenue positive, like they, um, they did the, the Red Dog um, Mine Access Road. Which is, which is much smaller. It's only about 50 miles. And then in that case, they had an agreement with a mine for a road. So all this thing was locked down through contracts. And in this case, it, it's much more complicated because you have the potential of multiple mines um, and everybody paying in a little bit. Like it would be a toll road. So ADA, ADA has to come up with a way essentially to, um, to sell bonds for this road. Mm. And they don't have enough money to build the road themselves. The mining companies don't have enough money to build the road themselves. Everyone just says, well, if you, if you build it, they'll come. And, and the mining companies say, well, if there's no road, there's no mines. So it's, it's, this, it's a kind of a weird dichotomy of actually kind of two industrial proposals because the road itself would be probably a billion dollars across some mm -hmm. extremely rugged terrain. And then, and then the mines would have to, you know, happen to, to, provide funding for that road so it's in litigation right now because the initial process that happened during the pr trump administration kind of sidestepped the fact that this is a mining road even though that's exactly what what they're calling it so when you do an environmental impact study you're you're saying you know what is the impact of this incursion but also what is the foreseeable use of this and they didn't really get to that part they just kind of count concentrated on the road and like okay what would a couple bridges look like even though it's like 11 major bridges over mm -hmm. these rivers these are like you know knick arm size um bridges and uh, or knick river and and um and then they oh, never massive bridges yeah big ones yeah and then and mostly single span so then the other thing is like how do you get such big steel that far north and there are just a huge amount of issues that ADA typically doesn't do their due diligence on. Like, they're fine at myopically looking like, oh, what if we do this thing in the middle of nowhere? It'll be great. But then you realize, like, well, what does it take to get there? We've got to get fuel in from Valdez, and we got to get steel, and we got to do all this stuff, and that, that has to come hundreds of miles on, on roads that are barely holding on anyway. So it's 
there's just a lot. They actually um, uh, launched a study, I think about a year ago, Ada was going to spend like $250,000 to find out what would happen if this road actually got built. How would they get stuff out of there to the port in Anchorage, which to me sounds like something that you would do before you propose right. a road. Like, you know, they literally don't even know where they were, would go with this road. So it's unfortunate because it's taking a lot of resources from people in the area that are either worried for the jobs, like they want to get trained up and be ready to accept either mining or road construction jobs. So that's one thing. But then there's also people like me that are looking at this and saying, well, this is like a huge environmental incursion. And, you know, is it really going to pay for itself? And and what's that going to look like? I mean, my family built a business literally from the ground up. So like we've incrementally adjusted as things happened. And, you know, we start off with hunting, but we see that that's, you know, that, that kind of model wasn't as sustainable as more like ecotourism. So we, we shift and we morph and we, we, we're at the size that we can do that you put in a huge industrial access road like this and there's not that many things you can do with it, especially with the size population in the area. So it would really be nice to see the the state and, and the legislature kind of looking in on that a bit more. But again, Ada is this kind of weird, sort of a, almost like a quasi private industrial thing that the, the board is actually, um, you know, decided by the governor. So there's a lot of power there by each administration to decide which direction mm. it's going to go. In. What does ADA stand for again? Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority. And and that's the other strange thing with this mineral belt is that at this point, um, all, all the companies that are interested are uh, Australian and Canadian, and um, none of them are Alaskan. Mm-hmm. I, of course, there's subsidiaries to that. There are different, um, you know, outfits that do expediting and whatnot that are from the state of Alaska. But um, the ore at this point would be um, taken out of the ground. It would not be processed. It would be trucked somewhere. They don't yet know where. I mean, ideally somewhere like Anchorage, but it could be as far as Seward or Valdez, and then shipped to Asia to be processed. So that this concept mm-hmm. even that it would benefit the state or our energy complex is pretty far-fetched mm. yeah well said i mean that's a good that's kind of a good overall explanation of uh, where maybe some of the biggest hurdles are yeah i, I mean I, I would really like to see a real debate about it the problem is if you mm. ask any questions about development then you're labeled an environmentalist and uh mm. you know if you don't get on board right away which like I said, it's a big disservice to the villages in the area because, you know, most of them are right at the poverty level, especially the, you know, the strange thing about the, um, this proposal too, is that it crosses the continental divide. So mm-hmm. you've got like where I'm at on the Kayakuk river area, that's a drainage that goes kind of more South into the Yukon river and then eventually into the ocean. And then you cross that divide right around Walker Lake area into the Kobuk drainage. And that goes west into the Bering Sea. And so that's that's a whole nother native culture. It's a whole nother um, uh, a people that have, have had a lot more development. Uh, the Kayakuk River people have not seen that much development. What they have seen is the Dalton Highway. A lot of them, the elders now, were hired to help build that road. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as it was built, they were laid off, even though they became operators. They became good operators and were told that that would be sustainable. And then the road was built. And they're like, okay, go home to your villages. We don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like what I've looked in that uh, Paltola, Murkowski, are they backing this? They're like, they are, for but they it? they pretty much back anything that has the word development in it. Which again, it's this this idea that there's there's no really discernment. Like 
uh, which, which really bothers me. It's not, again, we can't develop every single concept or project in the state. So we have a finite, uh, you know, number of resources and, and time and abilities, um, with these, you know, different infrastructure projects They we need to have sort of some way to say like, this is a good idea and this is a bad idea and this is somewhere in between. And if, if this happens, then we can move in this direction. If it doesn't, I mean, that's sort of how the pipeline was built. The oil companies, you know, got together and said, well, we've got a lot of oil up here, but it's going to need a pipeline to get it out of here. And they got together and they, they built that in an incredibly short amount of time mm-hmm. and it's been profitable ever since. And so, you know, that's what happens when industry sees something that it wants. And, and in this case, Ada has a also a bad habit of trying to um, fill in these gaps and say, well, industry doesn't want to do this. We're going to help them out. But in a lot of cases, industry doesn't want to do it because they know it's not profitable. It's going to lose money. And so industry, like these mining companies are like, hey, build us a road and we'll show you a mine. But I mean, that's like 80% of the, of the cost margin on this stuff. And then I didn't realize until this started how much mining is more about selling shares of a mine. Like in most cases, only about 10% of mines actually start like dig into the ground. Um, most of the time it's, a, it's about advertising to shareholders to, to, you know, get interest in something cause it takes a lot of money to move it forward. So it's a pretty wild thing. I, I didn't realize how 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 much of a gamble it was. I mean, it really is gambling. And then it goes in their resource bank, which goes against their books. And yeah, and in a lot of cases, they are um, you know there are mines that are purposefully put forward to to be a write off. Yeah, they know it's going to be a loss, and and it's it's going to you know downplay some other thing that they're yeah. doing. I was thinking more like on the reserves side, where it's like, okay, well, our company's more valuable because we have these reserves sitting over here. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So the ADA doesn't have a ranking system that ranks the profitability of the projects they're looking at. Not that I've seen it. And anything, anytime you ask them about profitability and any of this stuff, they tend to go into an executive session, which means they shut the door. They don't have to involve the public. And then you don't know what's going to happen. There was just a report that came out by Salmon State that was kind of auditing ADA over the last 30 years. And the, the numbers were not, not good. And of course, ADA, um, came right back and said, you know, this is, um, this is not a reality, but they didn't, they haven't actually refuted any of the, of the numbers right forward, which, Mm -hmm. which I would like to see, like, why not have a round table and they can, they can show what they're doing. And, and, um, that report was done for about $30,000. And again, Ada is now thrown like $250,000 out there, hoping that some contractor will pick it up and, and do a favorable report. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is like schoolyard stuff. Like, why why does it take so much more money to say that you're right? Yeah. Um, when, uh, when this one uh, this other report, you know, is yeah. saying like, hey, there there are some issues here, and it's not like we need to pull the plug on Ada. They have done some good things. They have the ability to do do good things. I think um, the Red Dog isn't necessarily an, an environmentally helpful thing to the region like it's it's been pretty tough on Cotsby in that area as far as the amount of toxins that they've released and it, especially in the Woolick River where you know now people are um drinking bottled water in the Kayana area and um so there are certainly issues there but from an economic standpoint the ADA sat down this was in the 80s and um and said okay this is how much it would cost to build a road and and then the mine this was Tech Kaminko said okay this is how much we'll we'll pay over the years and then there's a payoff date just like on a mortgage or anything mm-hmm. else and there were contracts and that that seems to me like pretty legitimate mm-hmm. and in the case of the Ambler Road there are no contracts yeah. there's no it's just 
it's really pie in the sky stuff and, and, uh, it's field of dreams. You know, they just keep saying, if we build it, they'll come. And Alaska is littered with projects where we built it and no one came. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, so what stage of the, the process is it in? Is it, has it had an environmental impact study done? It has. And that was during the Trump administration. And in the last few days of the Trump administration, they, um, they basically granted a, a right-of-way permit. Oh. But then the Biden administration um, was litigated. Um, there were uh, there's a Native tribe, the Tanana Chiefs Conference. Mm -hmm. and This then, is during the public review period afterwards? or No, this, I mean, basically it was finalized. Oh, okay. And then um, the Tanana Chiefs Conference and a, a couple of other environmental groups got together and, and litigated to say, hey, in this environmental impact statement you are you're supposed to look at um you know all these other things that come from a road and you're also supposed to be looking at cultural aspects and things that could be run over right and we don't feel that that was yeah. looked at properly and and it went to a judge and the judge said yeah you're right this, okay this was not and so, so they're reworking on that now it's it's in a pause right now okay. and it's hard to say what the biden administration will do because they are on the one hand um, pushing local minerals for things like EVs and solar panels. Yeah. On the other hand, they don't want nothing but scorched earth. So they're, they're trying yeah, to figure yeah. out like what that would look like. Yeah. What do we have mineral deposits for EVs there? I mean, theoretically it's, uh, again, I think if you were really interested in getting copper for the United States, all you'd have to do is go to a copper mine, like uh, say in Arizona and say, well, this one's already going. If we're going to throw a billion dollars at something, let's throw it at that, and you'll get out more copper. You already have roads. You already have infrastructure. Like, we're almost going to the moon to get more. So copper. there's no like rare earth metals here. We're just talking about mostly copper. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Walk us through some of the major uh, negative uh, impacts that could possibly occur. I think number one is the caribou. I mean, we're the last state with any caribou left. And the all the states bordering Canada used to have caribou in them. That was, they, you know, they were prevalent, and uh, and Canada is having a big issue with their caribou now as well. So as the more industrial development, the more that their um, habitat gets fractured, you know, the more it hurts them. There are herds in Canada that are like at ninety nine percent decline now, and um, in this particular area of the Brooks Range, we have three major herds: the Western Arctic, um, the Tshekpuk, and the Central. Arctic herd and the Western Arctic is the most famous because in, in, around the 2000s it was almost half a million head or somewhere around 550,000 um, huge but it has had crashes in in like I think uh, like in the 1970s it was probably down around 60,000 or something so mm. it has a history of crashing but then it, it builds back up and, and uh, the the biologists tend to say well it, it's, it can build up as long as they have that land to roam but if mm -hmm. you start boxing them in and especially keeping them from their calving grounds or their their different areas i mean you have five hundred thousand caribou they need a lot of land to graze mm, yeah. and when they graze land they oftentimes can't come back at, at inukuk i've noticed about a 20-year cycle we'll get um uh i think in 2012 i had a thousand caribou that were um that wintered over on Indicuk Lake. It was fantastic. Like you come out in the morning and there'd be ice fog on the lake from their breath. They're just, mm. they're just sleeping out there and you'd run a dog team out and they're just like exploding like a video game. There's just caribou like running everywhere and it was awesome. And then, um, but they, but they hammered the caribou moss and all the vegetation around the edge of the lake. And it took a couple of years to come back. And then I expect in 20 years, I'll see them again because I remember as a kid seeing them like in the 1980s or so. So it's like, it's really cyclical and they seem to know somehow that, that they need that time to come back. Mm. 
Is there major reports that happened when the Hall Road happened as far as the impact that that had on the caribou? There, there were some, but in, in talking to the elders in some of these villages, um, especially along the Kayakuk, they say that there were herds that were not counted so that they had what they call resident herds mm. that, that they, you know, they weren't just sporadically like, you know, like I said, on Inukuk, I see a herd that, or a, a group of caribou that shows up, you know, once every 15 or 20 years, but they would, um, they would see ones, you know, herds that were, um, overwintering in the Ray Mountains and the Alatna Hills and the Help Me Jack Hills in these different areas, and those bands have disappeared. Mm. And, and in a lot of cases, they blame that on the Hall Road, and they blame that on um, the fact that they weren't studied in advance and they weren't marked because they, the way that the biologists kind of delineate the herds is, you know, where they're overwintering, where their summer grounds are, and then where their calving grounds are. And there is there is a lot of mix, and especially with the Canadian border being relatively close by. You know, they, they can mix and match, and it's it's not a big deal for them. We call them different herds, like I said, the, the Shekpuk and the Central and the Arctic, but, um, you know, they're, they're fine to wander amongst each other. They're not shying away from each other because they're from a different herd. Can you maybe pull up, Brandon, um, if they have it, a map that kind of shows um, the different caribou's range or, like, the different groups in their range? I, I know I've seen that before, um, and they'll show colored maps of you know the different herds and where they where they're going yeah and you should be able to pull up especially with the western arctic it'll show that their calving grounds are kind of um you know in that northwest corner of alaska and then um and then they they used to come down in the winter into the seward peninsula and that has kind of retracted a bit um partly i think because of their numbers but then also partly because of the of the temperatures yeah that one Can you click on it? Maybe we can get to it. There you go. Click to There you go. Perfect. Um, we're on the adfngalaska.gov um, website for people that are just listening. It's kind of showing all the different um, caribou herds. Of them. Well, I didn't know there were so yeah. many. Yeah, and they're, I mean, some of them are pretty small, and they're really um, localized. Like you see some of these ones down in the Kenai Peninsula, and they're they're tiny. Uh, but then number 29 is that Western Arctic, and uh, that's a monster herd. Like I said, it'll winter down into the Seward Peninsula and cover a big area, but that has um, shrunk right up a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see where it overlaps with 26, um, which is the central, and um, to Shekpuk up there. Mm. Third. What's the red dots? Is that the, is that the um, calving grounds? Or that's a separate, oh, yeah, that's that's a separate the, one? That, I gotcha. That's right, the right. Shekpuk. Gotcha, gotcha. And they got them all broke down there. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and then three is the Central Arctic. So of those three, um, you know, it's hard to say when you're in the Brooks Range which one of those you're seeing exactly. Like, you know, oh, because they're all mixed. All they're all kind of mixed bag there. Exactly, but they're sort of delineated by their calving grounds. And then the porcupines oh, way over there in the east. Correct. Yeah. Okay. But those are big herds because they have a lot of land and a lot of freedom and no roads. And then when you come down farther south, they're they're much smaller. Um, you know, a lot more, um, a lot more people, a lot more industry, and uh, and less habitat. And then these um, ones like um, around Fairbanks, they get hammered. The forty mile, I, I won't hunt that one because it's just a, a shooting range around there. You get some. Um, some well, it is a shame I'm that I mean, that. If, if people are like you know mostly road hunters and and things that you can only really access if you don't have the money to go on a plane and go to the some of these more remote that's what happens to the Nelchina herd and the 40 mile herd and 
Yeah, that's all. Obviously, road what access. happened to Kenai Peninsula and all that stuff. It's just there's just so many more hunters that are going out there, and like you said, you go you go on that forty mile hunt, and you better watch out. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. You might get yeah. side by side of your yourself shot out there. Yeah, it sounds like a free for all. And I know a couple of years ago, they um, they normally had like a oh I think a one bull bag limit, and they switched it to two. And I guess no one thought to to at fishing game that that um, you know if you have a couple guys from Anchorage, they'll come up for two caribou times two or three guys. They, whereas they wouldn't have come up for one caribou, and so mm. it really changed yeah. the, the hunting pressure dynamic, and, mm. and then the area just got hammered. Plus, the herd was close to the road that year, so you know you could see them. Everyone got excited, <coughs> mm-hmm. and then um, yeah, it's it, it gets wild. The the stories I've heard from people having bullets whiz over their head and. Yeah, I've heard those stories myself. So, it's a so big turn off. So it almost seems like where the road would go and start it, you're going to impact three different, maybe four? Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was just looking at with the scope of the map. And I guess I have a little bit more um, perspective and buy-in on the ideal that it will impact the herd because it runs east-west. And it's basically, it's right, right here, right, about right in that yeah, kind of general area, a little bit farther south, and then a little further south. Okay. And then the other big concern is that um, uh, all the valleys in the Brooks Range are are aligned north south. So right. if you want to impact the most amount of water, you would go east west with your road, and that's exactly what the proposal is mm-hmm. is doing. So so as we look at this map here, John, you get all these drainages dumping down. Down, down out of the mountains, right? Exactly, yeah. And this is, you know, this is really wet country. Um, it's not wet in terms of rain. Like we only get 10 or 11 inches of precipitation a year in that area, but it's marshy. It's marshy and um, just a lot of waterways. And then, you know, during runoff in the springtime, there's just a huge amount of water that dumps out. And then by the end of June, it dries up. And then in August, it all comes back again and, and gets really wet. Would it say 11 major bridges? Yeah, all these little yellow boxes represent a, a major river or a major river crossing. Mm. What's that purple Holy area? Shit. What's the, that purple line? This purple area, right the, the concept with a lot of these um, projects is that you should come up with alternatives. And so um, Ada came mm. up with this alternative mostly because of Gates of the Arctic National Park. So here they're, they're crossing, I think, 20 or 25 miles worth of park, and here they would only cross 12. So, I mean, it's kind of – it was always a goofy thing to me because – you obviously you can't see this park line when you're flying over it and so this would be like strictly for um reducing your footprint on park lands but to me like the the whole area is important so mm-hmm. um that that was kind of done to help potentially appease park people even though the the right of way through gates of the arctic national park was already established when the the park itself was established in 1980 because the the mineral belt was known of so i think ted stevens was involved in that and um you know there was a lot of pushback to national parks in the 1980s and and um people thinking that alaska was so big like why do we need national parks up here and and uh, but the carter administration was you know really interested in getting these national parks put into place and so um the agreement was well we'll we'll do it as long as there is um, a right-of-way already established through that through that park that federal lands but this this area is a patchwork of state and native and federal and and so um it's uh which is good because it, it means that all these different um players have to to work it out 
Was there any proposals coming from the other way? Like barge and then come in mm. a road that oh, way. That would be a good question. From the west? From Kotzebue? Yeah, that'd be a lot shorter, right? Yeah, it would be a lot shorter, but it's more federal land, and you have to go through Kobuk Valley National Park and um, these federal mm. areas that were not established. Like, that was that's one thing that uh, Stevens and other um, mm. officials at the time didn't really look at. as, And so those, those corridors are not <coughs> built into those federal lands areas. Um, mm. There was also talk about having a rail come up from Ninana, which would be like come down here and um, access that area. And, and I think that's another failing of the EIS process was that they say that they looked at alternatives, which they're federally mandated to do, but they actually didn't. I mean, this, this straight line here was, was what, was proposed initially and and everyone was like you know this is really Let's the only do this yeah and yeah. It, i mean it's the it's the cheapest it's like you know when you hear about these projects where the you know the lowest um, bid comes in and they can uh there that's what you want so yeah, it's almost they, like a child yeah. was like well we can just go from this road straight over there yeah yeah you know actually the 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 rail line i mean that's more of a south north yeah, from exactly. Yeah. And if you actually wanted to transport or if you want to benefit locals by being able to actually haul fuel and goods in and you're not going to have hunters hanging off the side of that shooting caribou, you know, like it's a Absolutely it's a not. very you know, it's, it's something that you can police easily and, Less it, and impactful it's too. Yeah, it's uh, like truly an infrastructure project and yet yeah. that was there were no meetings about railroad and i think it's because it was expensive and it was um you know not like <coughs> i think the road was pitched as something flashy relatively cheap and you know let's just do it and and you hear these politicians now um i think you know sullivan is one of them who's who's constantly saying like you know why is that connecticut can have all these roads and why is it that rhode island has more roads than we do um you know, they're, they're just not comparable. There's way bigger populations, way more infrastructure. It's like complaining about not having roads on the moon. It doesn't make any sense. Like the, the roads that we build in Alaska, you know, we can barely maintain them now. I mean, look at plowing in Anchorage. It's, it's expensive. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. you know, have, has there been any, um, I'm sure that they've dealt with this a lot in Canada. Um, especially with the caribou and the migration of the caribou and all the the mining and things that are happening up there. Is there some takeaways that um, certain groups could take from past already um, evaluations and, and history that they've had there? Yeah, I, I would say the big takeaway is that roads and mining are killing their caribou. I mean, they're they're disappearing quickly. Like I said, there are herds there at 99% decline. There, there are biologists that have basically stopped studying boreal forest caribou because they're they're going to be extinct in in these areas that really like barren ground caribou is about all that's left in a lot of these areas just because they're so far north that they're still to some extent away from these industrial incursions but um yeah that that's the that's the big takeaway is really of all these herds um right now it seems like the porcupine herd is the only one that's potentially still stable or growing but I don't think there's been a good aerial survey on it for three or four years. So it's possible that those numbers have changed. Go back to the map of the caribou. Sure that's the one that's I on the... I just deleted the damn thing too, but... That's the one on the north, right? The north slope? Or yeah, the Arctic. it's northeast is the <coughs> porcupine and it shares um, Canada. Um, so on these Canadian studies, just so like we can go look at them later and stuff, what are 
you know, 99% decline, what are some of the, is there like links or access to like see some of that data? And so like, you know, our listeners can look at those and start seeing like, Hey, let's learn from someone else's issues. What the hell happened? Yeah. The, um, all of a sudden it's in experiencing difficulties. <laughs> of course it is. Just five minutes later. <laughs> Sorry guys. Yeah, I mean, pretty much uh, any of these uh, studies, if you just start um, Googling for caribou in Canada, and uh, especially these specific herds, because like I said, most of them are, are named and delineated um, due to their areas. Right. And then they'll, they'll have these numbers on them. And, and uh, like, like with the Western uh, Arctic herd, you can see these numbers, you know, crashing since the 2000s. You know, it like I said, they are kind of cyclical. The the ones in Canada to see all of them crashing to the extent that they are is it's pretty alarming. And, yeah. And um, and you know, we we have more and more technology with um, drones and especially um, satellite imagery to really get good counts on these herds now that we didn't before. I mean, it used to be you would um, have a, a Cessna or something out there with a camera underneath it, and they'd shoot some pictures, hope that while they're doing a census, it was a nice, bright, sunny day. Right. And then they take these images back under a loop and then, and start counting caribou. And now, you know, you can do that digitally uh, with satellite imaging. Really? You get really good. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah, they're doing that. The issue now is that fishing game, um, has to put a lag on that or hunters could, you know, look at that information and be like, well, that's where we're going to hunt because yeah, that's where they are. So th mm. there's generally like a six to eight week lag on their information just to make sure that, mm. you know, people aren't using it to collect yeah, them. Totally. Now, is, it, is the idea that this herd is going to come to where this road is being built, um, whether it was in Canada or what's proposed now or the Hall Road, and they're doing their mi annual migration and they go and they can't pass because there's construction happening, um, and then they just get off course? This this is a topic that um, that that causes a lot of consternation with people, and uh, especially with development. And I think there, um, there was a fishing game biologist by the name of Jim Dow out of the Kotzebue area, and he was the first to really look at um, collar data of these caribou and say, "Well, let's say we 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 have a known road like um, the Red Dog Mine Road, and we have the Western Arctic herd that encounters that. Now, if we have let's let's make a proximity of that. So, if a collared caribou comes within thirty miles of that road, what do they do? And and so he just you know set up this computer module to to pull those numbers out and see what they did. And because ostensibly he was flying over it. Uh, initially, and he'd see, you know, uh, it's fall time, it's starting to snow, and he'd see caribou tracks across the road and say, well, they're crossing the road. It's no big deal. It's not It's not a problem. But when he actually looked at um, the collar data, he showed that these caribou that came in contact with the road would actually school to the north of it like fish, and they, like, they were caught in an eddy. Mm. And they would sit there while all the other caribou that didn't hit it would continue down to the Seward Peninsula. And they're generally migrating at like seven or eight miles an hour and they're grazing and their, their concept is they need to get to their winter grounds, but they're eating along the way. And then these other um, collared ones that encountered the road, they'd school up like fish above it, like caught in this eddy. And that, that eddy would sometimes last like three months. And so now that caribou that was supposed to get down to the Seward Peninsula by like late October, you know, he's still way north. Mm -hmm. And so then finally one day he's like, okay, we're going to cross this road. He crosses the road and then he's cruising at like 12 to 15 miles an hour to get down to where he's supposed to be. So it has the, the impact of um, a pressure on that 
that caribou that can't eat as well when they're traveling that fast. And then also the locals, they're not able to hunt those caribou because they're just cruising through so fast. So there's a couple of things that were happening that he was, I think, really the first to notice that through that collar mm-hmm. data. And and the more they've looked at the collar data, the more they've seen exactly that, this weird eddying thing that happens when they encounter this road. They, they don't like it. Are they seeing that same thing in the, in the oh, not in the chick, what's our... Nelchina? You know, 13. Nel, uh, yeah, the Nelchina herd, where they're having to cross the, what the, uh, there's two different highways there, the, well, not the Steese Highway, with, from Fairbanks to the, Rich- <coughs> the Richardson. Richardson, thank you. And then uh, the Alcan. Yeah, I'm not sure about them. I mean, in those cases, they just don't migrate as much. Like the Western Arctic yeah, is, like is, stay. They, yeah, the, the Western Arctic herd moves so much. I think it has one of the largest land migrations in the world, mm-hmm. so thousands of miles. So you can really get this big-picture look at, like, what they're doing and where do they need to go versus Mel- Nelchina and the 40-mile. You know, they have this, like, 100, 200-mile area that they mm-hmm. kind of bounce around in. So it, it's a lot harder to say, you know, like, this is a problem for oh, them because okay. you're, you're looking at these little dots and, and trying to make, make sense of it. What's that road there when you're looking at the map there, U.S. Canada, and there's that one road that goes all the way up to the top there? I know my father-in-law said he's gonna he's gonna do that one on his bike. I know that because it's a really this one right here. I know that a lot of guys that do those crazy motorbike uh, adventure bikes stuff they well, they will choose that road. Enduro. Yeah, Enduro yeah. I think, I think yeah. that one's the Taylor. I'm not sure, um, but there's one of them that. I, yeah, that's. Well, he was showing me much. pictures, and I was like, "Well, I would suggest you do that one because you're trying to go on that whole road. Mm-hmm. That is a nightmare. That's like no fun for bouncing <laughs> around all day." And then he showed me the picture of that other one, and it seemed like it was paved and beautiful the whole way up till you get to the uh, Beaufort Sea. Yeah, you know I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's I've called been there. the but that Tuckavik. Yeah, yeah, Tuckatoyak Tuck Highway. Yeah. But it seemed like, man, you could get some research there because that's crossing directly in the path of where those caribou mm. on that mm. side have been mm. going through. The porcupine. Yeah, and that is, mm. I mean, it seemed like that road was way more invasive than, than the Hall Road, where the Hall Road is kind of skinny dirt road looking kind of thing, where this one was looked like a major paved highway yeah, with I, big embankments and things like that. Yeah, again, I think it really has to do with the, the general shift of, of the herds and where they're going and, and the, that difference between northwest versus east-south. Mm. So, uh, um, or east-west versus north-south. And that, um, like with the porcupine, you could have something that they're kind of brushing up against and, you know, can deflect mm-hmm. them a bit, but it's not it's not like a, like a wall there because that's north-south and kind of the direction that they may be moving. Um, but, but, I also, but I think it does also... Um, kind of segue into these issues that we're having these cross boundary that we're talking about now with mining and fisheries in the south and like if there's a mine in canada that can affect uh, waters in alaska like we should watch out for that in the same way that we um, promise a certain escapement of kings into canada up the yukon river like we mm. we need to have more and more of these agreements because we have to look at these whole ecosystems and that's pr- the second major um environmental impact that would happen is those water affecting the waterways Correct. Yeah, I, I mean that, but also the the impact to the people. I mean, uh, mining is kind of a tricky thing. Like I said, it's really um, it's a gamble where you have about ten percent success rate. So, 
I know right now, like Ada is sending teams into these villages and promising a lot of jobs and trying to recruit people. They, they, they do honestly want local hire, but then, you know, also what they're talking about is a structure that isn't necessarily prevalent in the villages working a nine to five or working a two week on two week off. Um, if you're in Kobuk, Shungnak, Ambler, like right next to that mineral belt, then maybe your commute isn't that far. Um, but if you're coming out of Hughes, Huslia, um, Alakakit, Alatna, you're, you're going to be flown out and then, you know, be a couple of weeks before you get back. And a lot of people haven't experienced that kind of thing going on. I mean, the, the, really the biggest industry right now for the Kayakuk people in these villages is, um, firefighting in the summer. And so then you have uh, a group of villagers that, that form a firefighting unit. So you're, you know, you're culturally together and you're united and then you go out and fight a fire and you might be in Arizona, but you're surrounded by everyone in your village. So it's a pretty mm. unique system and it seems to have worked, you know, fairly well. Uh, mining is, is very different. And then the other thing is you can have shareholders that just decide to drag up one day and you can be the most skilled oh, bucket yeah. operator and mm. your job is just done. Mm. So that's, that's tough. And I, and, and I, and I, you know, really worry about that because I hear it from the elders who worked on the, um, the pipeline road, they worked hard to get their certifications and, and learn how to run a cat and, and get good at it. And now they're, you know, they're blading snow on their roads and like Alakakit has like four miles of roads. So there's not a whole lot for an operator to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, let's take a quick break and we're going to come back and maybe get a little trivia and get back in some more of this topic here. How's your trivia? We'll see. It's pretty true. <laughs> Tailored restoration, 24-hour emergency home services, helping Alaskans restore their dreams since 1972. Services include fire, water, mold, post-emergency cleaning, repair, and remodeling. Tailored has an emergency response number with trained professionals available to help you at any time, day or night. Give them a call in Anchorage, Eagle River, Matsu, or Fairbanks. Make an appointment today at tailoredrestorationalaska.com. Since 2008, Serrano's is Anchorage's own new generation of Old Cocina. Their menu showcases the passion and love of their rich heritage and unique family recipes that have been passed down through the generations. Serrano's goal is to embrace and display trad flavors using the best ingredients that are available. They focus on making everything from scratch daily. In-house menu includes handcrafted corn tortillas, salsas, carne asada, and chorizo but don't take their word for it experience their tradition and sabor for yourself locations on tudor and northern lights both with new tequila bars check out their daily specials at serranosmexicangrill.com the connoisseur lounge located in the heart of palmer alaska the connoisseur lounge is palmer's first locally owned and operated cannabis retailer their beautiful store is located at 226 evergreen avenue the Connoisseur Lounge has exclusive cannabis products such as Snowcap Romance, Aurora Haze, Super Glue, and one of our favorites, Sugar Cookies. And if you're not into the flower, the Connoisseur can hook you up with edibles, vape supplies, and a ton of CBD options for all your health and inflammation needs. Check out their daily deals at theconnoisseurlounge.net, or even better, stop by the lounge today. Remember, you must be 21 years of age to enter their store. Where ago there, John? You were you were saying your your dad was saying what now? Well, he was pretty anti park at the time because he'd spent yeah. his whole life building up a hunting business, and then overnight yeah. they they came in and 
and uh, <coughs> established this 8.3 million acre park. So it was a it was oh. a rough time growing he up. He was then. pissed. He was super pissed, and he was German, which is like oh yeah, extra feisty. It's super feisty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And and actually, he was Prussian, so he'd come. Uh, the The family had um, been forced out of uh, East Prussia during World War II into Germany, mm-hmm. and then um, at the end of World War II, immigrated to the United States into Washington State. And so it was like, you know, kind of this classic American story where they're the, mm. the kind of refugees. There was a a big push back then to you know bring. Um, Germans into American society and like this um, reparations yeah. concept that you know we can we can hold everybody down and and like they did in World War One and then you have World War Two or we try to have these reparations and so um, my father and all his brothers um, really grew up very American like they wanted to learn English and they yeah. wanted to be American and um, I wasn't taught any German at home it was just like you're American and this is okay. this is where we're going so kind of went away from the um culture and yeah to some extent although yeah. having this hunting lodge um it really appealed to europeans because like oh yeah this was their their pinnacle um concept that you could go into the middle of nowhere there'd be this big lodge and um you could have your schnapps and cigars and base <laughs> out of there and then this pilot with you know a bullet hole in his butt would take you out <laughs> to these cool areas like they were eating it oh, up man, and then he that... spoke fluent german so there was no oh he was still there. like entrenched in it yeah yeah, okay. and so and so our clientele <laughs> was probably ninety ninety five percent European to start. Okay, and um and yeah, and they loved it. So mm. I could see that. <laughs> we have trivia music, Daniel. We're still working on it. Still in the works. We're gonna find something good. Yeah, if anyone has something, send it in. Yeah, email. You could even make your own. You know. Ooh, we need to. Yeah, what happened to the jingle guy? We're working. I'm still working on it. What what will we give someone if they uh, a shirt? Yeah, if, they, if you yeah, you would get some we'll swag. A, yeah, send if you come up with a jingle. jingle and you send it to our email, alaskawildproject at gmail, um, we'll send you whatever. Yeah, you want let's have website. some dialogue first, and maybe we can get them in the studio, and we'll have a little. Well, let's see what they got first before yeah. they bring them yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. We have to select <laughs> it, but yeah. if we select it, they get some swag. All right. There All we right. Go. Um, all right, we're gonna do some trivia. So, John, you're you're probably gonna nail all this trivia. So, um, don't don't build me up too much. Let's let Daniel <laughs> Daniel and Brandon guess first, but then you you guess last. Okay, is that cool? Yeah. All right, I got a lot of confidence. These, are these John. multiple choice? Because that's how. No, there's not. I wish they choice. were. We I wish that. they were. I feel like no. I'd kill that shit if yeah. it was multiple. Yeah, we don't play that. C. We don't play C. that C. way. C. Yeah, we do have a thing. If it you know it's uh, it falls the Bob Barker rules, but. Uh, Okay, um, what latitude is the Arctic Circle at? Yikes, 62. Uh, 49. And they should pull your ADL for this one. <laughs> 66, 66. That's oh, right. Thank you. I was yeah. close. Thank you. Yeah, sixty six point six. Yeah. Pull our driver's license for the ID for that one. <laughs> I mean, just yank it. No more driving yeah. an ADL. That's I it. mean, there. This trivia, a lot of it through in the existence of Alaska Wild Project is like, how do these guys not know this shit? Right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's <laughs> fun and hum- humbling to us most. And of I'm the time. sure I've read it and learned it in school and all those things, but I mean, there's just a lot of things you just learn and forget. 
Yeah. I, I would you, say that, that that's fair. I mean, you li- you you spend a lot of your time right. But you've all hunted north of the Arctic Circle, right? I have not. Traveled. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, we've been a couple of times, but I didn't. You didn't feel focus. that bump when you went over it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of bumps, John. <laughs> like bumps so much that I like got bumped out of my seat. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> where's your wilderness lodge in comparison to the line? We're sixty miles north. Okay. Sweet. So you've seen it on the map a few times? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, my dad used to do a little bump in the plane to let people know they crossed it. That's awesome. Oh, that's cool. So 60 miles north, um, what do you get, like 10 or 12 days of dark? I think technically we don't. It, it's kind of weird. The, the Arctic Circle is not like this perfect line. Uh-huh. So um, it really depends on the mountains and the valleys and stuff. But we actually, on winter solstice, will see the sunshine. Really? But okay. And, and I'm not entirely sure if that's a mirage or like we're, we're truly getting it. But I have mm. been up there then and I have had sun on my face. It was like, you know. That. Just a quick peek. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. A quick flash. Yeah. Okay, guys. Why is the Arctic Circle important? Like, what? Why? Why does it exist? Why? Why is that ne- that sixty six point six important? Brandon. <laughs> uh, well, I'm thinking it in terms of its circumference of the planet, the Earth itself, right? Like, it's. I'm just not very educated on this shit, but. Um, just thinking about how it's Earth is round. Get to the top; it's got its cap, right? Because it, would that be like its upper cap? Why would they pick yeah. that as being like the Arctic Circle and not like some other number? You know, why wouldn't it be mm. like seventy or fifty-four? Why is it sixty-six point six? Sixty-six point six. It's got to be some sort of calculation. Well, if you uh, carry the two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't have a clue. Um, man, I'm gonna say it has to do with the sun. Mm. I'm gonna Absolutely. say it has to do with the sun. It has to do with um, yeah, the amount of sunlight that happens there and the rotation of the sun of the Earth around the sun. That's my guess. You're just gonna take my guess too. I mean, I already threw mine out there. All right. Okay. I mean, I you want to tell us, John? Did the best yeah, I could. Yeah, that, that's where you're going to see that during the equinox, that theoretically there would be no sun on December 21st, mm. and then 24 hours of sun on June 21st. So yeah, the one latitude, one latitude south that you'd still have sun, right? On got it. Winter solstice. So I was right. Yep. So it's right, right at that. Yep. Nice. Yep. Yep. Nice. Yep. Okay. And it then a, it was a group effort. Answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we were talking <laughs> about these like summer solstice and winter solstices. Um, what did the what's the fancy name, the fanciful nickname that we call those two? So, the um, it's, I'm like I'm actually trying to answer like this. Ask why I don't know this. You you know. I'll these. tell you why so in a minute. Y- you know why these, but but what do we call them in Alaska? Like those two days, not winter solstice, summer solstice. They're the. Longest and shortest days of the year. Yeah, but what's like the fanciful name? There's a brewery named after one of them. Midnight Sun. Yeah, and what's the winter one? Winter uh, Sun. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> damn it. Uh oh. I don't know. I said Winter Sun. They all laughed at me. You know this one, John? Well, the, the equinox. Right. 
what's the fanciful Alaska name? We got Midnight Sun for the summer solstice. What's the winter solstice? Hmm. I guess I don't know that one. I don't. I don't know that one. Either. I didn't know this either. So it's a polar night. Polar oh. night. Yeah. So that's like the actual like fanciful name for. Uh, oh. We I'm always, start we always just called it time to go to Hawaii or Mexico. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's a real last time to leave. Let's right. get out of here. Right. Yeah. Well, that was some fun trivia. Though. I, I enjoyed. You know what's a really fun fact and like coincidence? What's that? So my father's birthday is on December 21st. My birthday is on June 21st. Wow. Go figure. That's unbelievable. How that oh, all worked that's out? That's fucking right? rad, dude. You, know, you're like right? born to be in Alaska. That's what I'm saying. Like it's like. How does it? His is the winter. I'm the summer. Go figure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, the movie Paving Tundra. Um, I noticed that on your guys' site. I want to go back and watch that. And anyone that wants to check it out, if you go to the um, Brooks Range council.org is that what the website is brooksrange.org Brooks, just brooksrange.org and on there is the link to um the movie or f- is it a movie or is, is it, it is a, a documentary doc- about 20 26 28 minutes long okay explain to us for people that are never going to watch it kind of what it is yeah there's a um, filmmaker named jamie ditmar who um, came up with the idea to come up there and um and kind of document this in the early stages i think it was a, uh, about 2015 when she came out um, with a few other filmmakers and um, they spent uh, about i think four or five six weeks basically kind of ground truthing the proposed route um, going from pump station five area give or take of the dalton um, cutting across and and to um, to really follow it is difficult summer or winter. And so um, I kind of discussed it with her and, and we kind of looked at what's what's viable and what would be filmable. And ultimately they um, they floated the first part on um, the, the Kayakuk River from uh, the Dalton Highway to the village of Bettles and then which is which is pretty much right along um, the road proposal and then jumped in a plane. And or actually, they floated all the way down to Alakakit, which which basically it follows the river, but it kind of um, heads south of where the road proposal is. And um, but they got to talk to people in those villages that would be really impacted. They're downstream, and um, they would um, potentially cut off their caribou, pollute their rivers and water, and the and the the people are actively uh, worried about it because um, the the Kayakuk people have have already seen that. You know these these issues don't really result in jobs for them, and um, and yet they degrade their habitat. And so um, she got to talk to them, and then she uh, flew from there into um, visit uh, my lodge and my family up there, and kind of see what was going on, what, what what it looked like to have a business and a family that had lived up there as long, and then jump from there over to Walker Lake, which is kind of the headwaters of the Kobuk River, and so got to jump into that watershed and then float. Um, the Kobuk, it takes about 10 days to go from Walker Lake um, to those, the kind of these, this tri-village area of um, Shungnak, Kobuk, and Ambler. And then got to meet with those villages, film them. And then um, I think, uh, I'm not sure if the whole crew or some of them eventually floated all the way to Kotzebue. Um, but um, they, they got to, you know, more or less... Um, follow that whole route, give or take, and uh, and see the people in the area, and talk to them. And then they they had also set up um, to talk with the mining companies and and visit the mine. But once they got into the Ambler area, the the mining companies balked and and mm. uh, and wouldn't talk to them. It's unfortunate. 
so yeah, it's kind of a bummer that they they don't have that because the the mining companies have really pushed that they're culture first and that they want to have jobs for the people. But if you ask any questions, then they um, they tend to kind of run and hide, which is which is unfortunate with all this stuff. Like I'm, I you know, my family was developers. We're unless we question development, then apparently we're environmentalists. But um, but the the state of Alaska should really be talking about this stuff. I mean, we're a huge state with huge resources and not that many people, and we need to, you know, make smart choices. And so, you know, there's you know, big talk about the Willow Project now and um, drilling in the refuge mm -hmm. and and um, and these these mining things and and actually even in Fairbanks, like we have the um, Fort Knox gold mine um, just north of Fairbanks. But because of the flight patterns flying in and out of Fairbanks, nobody sees it. But it is a massive hole in the ground equal to about the size of Fairbanks. I mean, it's huge. Wow. Um, but unless you look on Google Maps, you you will, you don't see it. And uh, it's you know it's a huge taxpayer for the the Fairbanks area, but it's also a you know huge electricity burden, and uh, it's caused our rates to go up. And and you know it's been it's been a thing. Yeah. Um, where are some places that people that want to learn more about this um, are interested in um, learning more about this? Where are some places that they could go to whether donate or maybe write a letter or whatever? Um, I would say, um, you know, the Brooks Range Council, brooksrange.org, um, has a pretty comprehensive website that gives you kind of some links um, uh, to the to the area. I've got it up right here. It's a great website. Yeah, and it's links, YouTube videos. Yeah, it's, it's pretty basic um, and, and showing off the locals in the area. Yeah, and then um, the National um, Park Service Cons uh, Conservation Association (NPCA) has gotten involved because they're kind of this uh, citizen watchdog group that kind of looks after national parks and uh, has a membership um, across the U.S. kind of looking at all um, parks and, and um, potential issues with them. And so this obviously got onto their radar by crossing uh, Gates of the Arctic and Kobuk Valley National Park. And so they've really kind of mobilized and uh, are working to um, connect Alaskans with people in D.C. and and lawmakers and, and citizens to, you know, um, question what's going on here and and, uh, and really bird dog it to make sure that um, if it's something that we do that, it, that it's done right and that's uh, I think um, also just asking your your local um, representatives about it and and having these hard um, conversations it's, it's good I think um, people need to be involved and, and if you don't then you know these wild things happen and and are, aren't as wild as they were before and I sometimes get people saying, well, you know, you have done, your family has done this and now you just, you want to keep it all to yourself. There is nothing that we're doing that's putting up a gate. We're not a gated community <coughs> at all. I mean, um, uh, this, the, the, I, I think to me, it's really kind of like a trails issue where you have a multi-use trail system, like Anchorage is great about it. Like the, the trails that you have here that everyone can access, but if one person fucks them all up for everybody, then it's not, it's no longer multi-use. And, that, and that's the mm. thing for me. So we need to look at these, you know, incursions and these big developments that would be an impact to everybody and say, is that, you know, is that worth it? Because it would change the dynamic and so if it's this concept of not in my backyard is a bad thing, I think everyone should be worried about their backyard. And then, you know, that's ultimately what, uh, you know, makes Alaska great to me is that you have these communities that are watching out for the caribou herds and the different salmon um, populations. And, you know, we're worried about this stuff because we eat off of it and we love it and we live it. 
It's, it's cool. Yeah. This is a fantastic state. I mean, it's like five states in one. That's great. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I, I think doing some research in the weeks prior to this podcast and as we've gotten involved with uh, backcountry hunters and anglers and their big support push on the No Road to Ambler, there's a lot of good information on this, both pro mining and, you know, that dynamic and then there is the um, <clears throat> information that you can find on the Brooks, uh, Brooks Ranch Council website where there's enough information available to you both online and in paper where you can, you can go balls deep into this, study it, and then come up with your own informed opinion on whether you support it or not. Or, or there's a lot of good information and some say there's some bias here, bias there. I think there's enough both ways that you can look at this and you can make a decision for yourself if you're an Alaskan and you want to say something or ask questions that you can find good information and and allow yourself to take action whichever direction you want to go. And I, I know I'm I say that on the on leaning toward the side of really read into this from all angles. And before you pass judgment or you make an opinion on it, read up on this. Look at all the information. There's tons and tons of research and information available to people to look at. Um, and then if you're interested, you can take action on the website there. You can actually submit what you want done and what you want to say. Um, you can actually make an impact on it. Yeah, I think so. You especially know? if you reach out to your your local politicians, I mm -hmm. also have a. Um, uh, there's a link to a petition on there. We have, I think, over. Yeah, I got it right here up on up on the website. It's. Yeah, we've had over 103,000 signatures. I mean, it's not yeah. nothing, and. Um, That's what I meant by that. Yeah, people are. Um, People are interested in it and and should be interested. I mean, these things should be talked about, and I think mm -hmm. it, it would be it would be nice to see um, Ada be um, you know more receptive to to just these basic questions and uh, it could make, make the whole thing better and, and, uh, and more sustainable. I mean, that's, that's what Alaska needs. In your gut, how do you think this goes? My gut is that it, it you know, if the state is trying to um, do something that the, that private enterprise can't handle, it's going to fall flat. I mean, we have roads to nowhere. We have, um, you know, all kinds of things. It's, uh, it, it doesn't sound good, which is, which is not great for the people of the north. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of investment up in these areas, especially for the Kayakuk people. And um, the problem is when you introduce something that's a bad idea as the only idea, mm -hmm. that's what really mm. grinds me on this. There are smart people in these villages. They want development. They're just saying, don't burn our house down to make us warm. That doesn't make sense. Mm. Like, like mm. we want smart investment. They can, they could do a lot in these areas, but, the, you know, you show up with this big shiny concept, you know, these foreign companies coming from Australia and South Africa and Canada and uh, everybody just falls all over themselves to make it happen. And it's not, it's not right. And, and it's too bad because um, we, we're, we're smarter than that. Well said. Very well, John, thank so. you for coming in and chatting with us and, and taking the time to fly here and chat with us about yeah, this. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, anyone looking to look further into John, it is at Arctic Johnny on Instagram and the Beautiful Lodge. Um, the Instagram for that is at Go Far North. Um, any last? 
Thanks, John. I appreciate yeah, it, man. Absolutely. And I, I take all questions and I'm, I'm a total Alaskaholic. So, you know, any questions <laughs> about the Brooks Range, the far north, Fairbanks, hit me up and uh, I'm always happy to help people get out and, and get out and see this place. Alaskaholic, man. I like yeah, that one. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot for taking the time to jump on Alaska Airlines flight down here and to have to turn and burn and go right back. And um, I think that shows your dedication to the message and what you what you uh, support and your support for us. Thank you. We support yeah. you. And, uh, man, appreciate your time. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you, you so much, John. Stay wild, Alaska. You remember my speaking to you of what I call your overcautiousness. Are you not overcautious when you assume that you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing? The Alaska Wild Project podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Barney's Sports Chalet, supplying hunters with the best hand-selected gear since 1963. The exclusive home of Frontier Gear, built for the rugged Alaskan terrain. Your one-stop shop for all your outdoor needs. Visit Barney's today at 906 West Northern Lights. Arbor Digital, the forefront of digital assets, cryptocurrencies, and wealth management. Providing a low-cost, research-based investment strategy for Alaskans looking to invest their hard-earned money. Visit arborcapital.io today to put your money to work. Tailored Restoration 24-Hour Emergency Home Services. Helping Alaskans restore their dreams since 1972. Services include fire, water, mold, post-emergency cleaning, repair, and remodeling. Give them a call in Anchorage, Eagle River, Matsu, or Fairbanks. Hit them up at tailoredrestorationalaska.com. Total Truck and Alaska Overlander, Alaska's premier supplier for custom automotive accessories and overlanding products, providing all-inclusive rental vehicles and trailers custom outfitted to explore the Alaskan backcountry with a unique and convenient traveling experience. Serrano's Mexican Grill, two locations, one on Tudor, one on Northern Lights. The Northern Lights location has their new tequila bar. Check it out. Also see their daily specials at serranosmexicangrill.com. The TreehouseAK.com, located at 341 Boniface Parkway, Alaska's own and grown cannabis and CBD store. Ask the bud tender what the strain of the day is to get your 10% off. The Treehouse, where the culture lives. The Connoisseur Lounge, Alaska's premier locally owned and operated cannabis retailer, located in the heart of Palmer, Alaska. Their cultivated products include Snowcap Romance, Aurora Haze, Superglue, and much more. Find them at theconnoisseurlounge.net. AKO Farms, located in Sitka, Alaska, built from the ground up with concentrates as their single motivation, with exclusive products such as their sugar wax, full-spectrum diamond sauce cards, and more. Ask your local bud tender about AKO. Marijuana has intoxicating effects that may be habit-forming and addictive. Marijuana impairs concentration, coordination, and judgment. Do not operate a vehicle or machinery under the influence. There are health risks associated with consumption of marijuana. For the use of only by adults 21 and older, keep out of the reach of children, and marijuana should not be used by women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. The Bait Shack. Located on Ship Creek, upstream of the bridge. Can't miss the bright red shack. They're the go-to fishing gear rental and guide service on Ship Creek. Tight lines and fish on. Come hook into the action with them. Hit them up at thebaitshackak.com. Snow Pro AK, your snow and ice management company specializing in business and residential properties. They know what it takes to keep your property presentable and safe. Give them a call for a free estimate at 280-7098 or visit lawnproak.com. Double Shovel Cider Company, located off of Arctic and 58th. 
handcrafted Alaskan-made colonial ciders. They also have a tap room downtown on the corner of 5th and E. Stop by today and taste an award-winning cider. The Alaska chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. BHA is the voice of our Alaskan public lands, waters, and wildlife. Their goal is to uphold our hunting and fishing legacy while keeping our public lands wild. Stand up today and join BHA at backcountryhunters.org.